Welcome to episode 5 of the AWS What's Next podcast, in which hosts Nick Walsh and Robert Zhu share the latest news and launches from Amazon Web Services. This episode features AWS Code Artifact, Amazon SageMaker Ground Truth, and Amazon Neptune. Hello and welcome. We are live again with another episode of AWS What's Next, the show where we cover the latest and greatest launches from Amazon Web Services. My name is Nick Walsh, developer advocate here at Amazon Web Services. And joining me is the amazing Rob Zhu. But uh, Rob, <laughs> we're here, right? Show's not canceled yet. Yeah. Congratulations. We must be doing something right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we uh, give each other a little pat on the back right here. But uh, no, regardless, uh, you know, we're clearly doing something right. Uh, at least, you know, we like to tell ourselves that. Uh, but more than anything, motivation behind the show, again, to bring the latest and greatest launches to you, uh, developers there at home or wherever you may be. Um, because we know that whether it's reading blog posts, seeing sample code, um, maybe you're someone who's crawling through GitHub repositories to see as SDKs get updated. Uh, we know that people like ingesting news in many, many different forms. Uh, and video and audio form is uh, certainly one of those that was not entirely covered in the way that we wanted to be able to see it before. Um, so we're bringing that here. We also know that with the latest and greatest launches, you want to, you want a little more than just hearing about it, right? You want to see it in action. You want to, you want to know what does this actually change for me? And, and is this something I'm going to be using today, tomorrow or next week? So that's what we want to do. We, we, we've gone internally. We've wrangled uh, some of the service team members that have created these services that we lo- know and love. Um, and we brought them here to show you a little bit about each of those. Um, I know we have some exciting ones lined up for today's episode. I say this every episode, but I will continue to say it until people tell me that they feel otherwise. So Rob, what else do we cover? We're covering the launches. We're, uh, I mean, everything here is launch related. Uh, we've got some demos. We've got those service team members, but we do some other things too, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. We have a brief news segment in the beginning where we kind of weigh in on some of the recent announcements that are, are happening across AWS. And, you know, these are kind of meant to be quick touch and go. Uh, it's just we'll drop a link in the, in the chat so that you can read up about it a little bit more. And uh, these are things that, you know, they might be very, very significant. It's just that they don't lend themselves to a 20 minute demo. And we've got four of those two for you today. Yeah. And unfortunately, time is a finite resource. If it was really up to us, we would be able to have demos and showcase every single one of these. Unfortunately, time is uh, a valuable finite resource. So we have to take sort of an opinionated take on here on which ones we can bring in for demos and which ones we want to cover. But again, we try to boil this down so that it becomes as digestible as possible. There are so many launches that happen. It's hard enough for us to keep up with it. And we can only imagine how hard it is for you. We're here to try to make it a little bit easier. So without further ado, again, why don't we get into some of those launches? Again, this is a live show. This is not pre-recorded. I promise we're watching chat. We are streaming to both twitch.tv slash AWS, as well as our LinkedIn Live account there as well. Please, if you are watching, participate. Uh, drop those questions in chat, whether it's just asking us why we look the way we do, or if it's you know questions about the services. We're watching. We'd love to get those questions answered on stream. Um, again, trying to deliver better content for you, the viewers at home. So uh, without further ado, let's get into our uh, quick news roundup segment. We've got a few orders of business here. And I figured that since I love talking so much, I guess I'll just get into the first one. How does that sound? 
Oh, let's do it. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I love the affirmation. Okay, cool. So first up, we have uh, Amazon SageMaker components for Kubeflow pipelines. Those are a lot of buzzwords in one launch sentence, but I promise we'll be able to unpack it really quickly. So largely, again, Amazon SageMaker, sort of this end-to-end tool for building machine learning pipelines, whether you're looking for training or deploying for inference. Kubeflow being an open source deployment tool for uh, managing your, these machine learning pipelines. You have to do everything from ingest your data, pre-processing it, uh, doing feature engineering, training your model, deploying it. Maybe you have ABN deployments or blue-green deployments. All of this is just like, a, it's it's a lot of steps. And the reality is that a lot of traditional software tools didn't really solve for that. And that's why Kubeflow came about. Uh, and so the ability to have these AI ML pipelines, very valuable. And now being able to more closely bundle SageMaker components for, th- for prior upstream steps like data pre-processing or feature engineering more closely mates sort of the ability to abstract some of the underlying infrastructure that SageMaker allows. But now to do this in the context of a Kubeflow pipeline, uh, this is a hot launch that happened on June 2nd. There is a really great blog post that we will get uh, a link to in chat. I see it already in there. So if you're performing AI ML or, or you're training models, deploying models on AWS, uh, you're using SageMaker, you've been considering Kubeflow, or maybe you're already using it, this is something that I know will be relevant to all of those folks. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good call out because um, this is a trend that I've been noticing. I'm interested to hear what you think, Nick. You know, it's, I've been observing that SageMaker is making more and more inroads. Like people, I think at first, the initial offering of SageMaker was like, oh, it seems like kind of a walled garden almost. Everything seems to kind of have to be in-house, proprietary, it has to use a specific workflow. And over the course of the, the years, I've seen the team rapidly add these new features to enable customized workflow, to enable container-based workflows, to enable cube, things like Kubeflow pipelines. So I just think they're, they're really heading in the right direction. And uh, it's going to be um, it's going to make the product kind of have a lot more broad appeal to the ML community. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that, you know, like our motivation, our philosophy behind the, these products and these roadmaps, uh, it can, maybe it can be hard to be confident in what that is. But like, I'll just come out and say it like at AWS... We don't want to have to prescribe to the customer how to how to write their code or to deploy their software. We want to meet them where the customer is and, and develop tools to enable them. And I think that especially in the ML space with how ubiquitous open source tooling is like Kubeflow or TensorFlow, anything on the framework side um, uh, for, for training models and Kubeflow now for managing these, these pipelines in Kubernetes, like we want to meet you there, right? We don't want to have to build a tool that has to compete against something you already know and love. And so, you know, I think you can really expect to see, much to your point, uh, more integrations for these tools that we know you're already using. And that comes directly from the feedback. So let us know. We're curious in hearing if you're using SageMaker or there are functionalities that are blockers from integrating with your workflow. Let us know because launches like this are a direct result of those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. So I have some exciting news to share. I don't know. It's kind of a a change in, in pace from a SageMaker technical announcement, but we have something called the AWS Heroes program. And uh, we'll have a link in the chat, of course. Um, but basically, the rundown of the Heroes program is that it's a way to recognize people that have made significant contributions to AWS from a community perspective. So these are people who uh, are producing technical tutorials. They're they're writing about uh, their infrastructure. Maybe, maybe they've written books. But these are these are experts in their area on AWS, and they're an extremely important part of what makes AWS successful, right? When you think about AWS, it's not just a bunch of APIs and a bunch, you know, a, um, a bunch of services and a bunch of on-demand infrastructure. It is, of course, that, but it's so much more, right? It's a community. And the, the Heroes program is a way to recognize outstanding community members. And so this is kind of what 
These are people that we hold up as exemplars of what we think the ideal AWS community member should be. And I'm really excited to announce that uh, we've added 25 new community heroes recently, and they're from all over the world. Just looking at this list of uh, countries that they're from, it's unbelievable. Um, we have new heroes from Germany, South Africa, Denmark, Brazil, Turkey, Japan, India, France, Korea, China. This is a global phenomenon. And this is one of the things that makes the program so exciting because it's a great way to get that kind of diverse perspective from people from all over the world, all different walks of life. And in particular, I want to call out that the hero that we added from China is from my home city of Hangzhou. Uh, so shout out to that. That's awesome. But yeah, I think you should, you know, if you're an AWS user, you're a heavy AWS user, I would, I would check this out because I think this is an example of, you know, maybe it's like you can become a hero one day, right? I don't think anybody in our heroes program ever expected that they would become a hero. And so this is kind of a, a, a program that, that we're excited to expand and continue to support in the future. So uh, really glad to see the expansion here. Yeah. Again, before uh, I have some more comments on this before we get into the other stuff, but since we're just a few minutes into the broadcast, again, reiterating, this is the live show. Again, AWS What's Next, covering the latest launches and news. We've got a few more orders of business here on the news segment, but we will be getting into three separate demos. Again, those being the newest service launch from AWS, Code Artifact. We'll also be covering DMS integrations with Amazon Neptune, as well as 3D Point Cloud Ground Truth workflows for Amazon SageMaker Ground Truth. So stick around. We've got uh, some exciting demos still to come. But yeah, no, Rob, I, I can't uh, emphasize you know what you said enough. I think that another way that I like to see it is you and I are both developer advocates, right? Like traditionally, it's it, it can be difficult to be an advocate for an entire user community as someone who's you know performing their own full-time job elsewhere, right? And so some of these people are, are, are ones that, that do a lot of things that may look similar to, to you and I, right? Like producing training material, running user groups, or being able to uplift other community members. Some of these people, there may be people that are already exhibiting the characteristics of being a hero in your community already, and we, we may not just be in touch or as familiar with it. So again, you know, really, really happy to be able to give credit, I think, where credit is definitely due to some people doing some amazing work that are helping to enable developers out there to use AWS and to sort of lift the lift the tide, I think, right? Like more perspectives on building educational content or to empowering the community is always going to be better. And we uh, thank the tireless effort of, of a lot of our heroes. So thank you again. And congratulations to this new recent batch. Yeah. And also on that note, if you know somebody who you think is doing amazing work in the AWS community and they deserve recognition, please reach out to us. Let us know what they're doing. Get in touch with us. We want to know about these people. You know, Obviously, we have a limited scope. We can't, there's a, a lot of amazing work that's going on out there. It's inevitable that we're going to miss a couple of people. So please help us extend that, that awareness um, so we know where really good work is happening. Awesome. Well, uh, just because I, I love AIML, that's the that next launch I'm going to get into. So moving away from sort of the SageMaker side of things, we're going to get into the AI APIs now. Well, one in particular, and that's going to be Amazon Personalize, a uh, managed API service that lets you ingest uh, historical data based on uh, usage patterns and, and reviews so that it's annotated to be able to then perform inferences for predictions and personalized content going forward. The example I'm going to give, so I might as well just jump ahead of the analogy right now, is going to be the use of Personalize for serving content recommendations, either movies, let's say, or maybe products like Amazon.com on Amazon.com. So the actual launch is recommendation filters for Amazon Personalize. And let me walk you through this, right? So how many times have you made a search for something in your quest? Like maybe you moved and you just searched for a new mattress uh, and you just suddenly start getting bombarded 
with mattress advertisements everywhere, right? Uh, and then once you've already bought it, you're just like, okay, like enough. Like I already have one. I only need one. Why, why do I keep getting advertisements? I wish I could not get this. And the advertiser doesn't want to, or the platform never wants to serve you advertisements that you are never likely going to get a product that delights you from. And so essentially, this was a difficult problem to sort of try to resolve previously from a personalization perspective. And so the uh, recommendation filters for Amazon Personalize essentially eliminate the need for you to go and build your own bespoke sort of filtering mechanism on the recommendations for a given user. And those are now automatically bundled in. So you can say that if someone has converted on X item, uh, that because of the data that you've already loaded into Personalize, it can tell that because this is highly similar to other items around it can infer that it should not uh, then continue to vend you recommendations for that. Again, one example in a shopping scenario, but it's one that from both the developer side, but also from the consumer side uh, is very nice. Like I do, you know, advertisements can help me find products that I enjoy or help me find movies, but there's only so many movies of an exact type I can watch or only so many mattresses I can buy to fill my bedroom. So uh, yeah, a cool launch doesn't sound super sexy, but I think Sol is a very tangible, uh, tangible point and experience for developers and uh, customers on the internet alike. Yeah. Uh, how many mattresses do you need, Nick? Uh, I mean, <laughs> one, but like, you know, how many is really too many, I guess? <laughs> well, customer obsession, right? So I'll, I'll go and I'll fill out those uh, Amazon reviews based on my experience with them. I'll, yeah. You know, it's... Yeah. I, I, when, you, when you said that, I realized I missed my calling in life, which is a professional mattress reviewer. <laughs> hey, I mean, you know, someone's got to fill out those reviews and do quality control. So it's... Uh, Unfor yeah. Unfortunately, I do not have the time to do that, but we can build the tools at AWS that can enable better experiences for people that will do that. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I am now standing between you, the viewer, and our incredible demos. So I'm going to try and be brief about this next announcement. We recently launched on May 18th, DynamoDB support for empty values for non-key strings and binary attributes. Oh, okay. If this this is something that I, I might nerd out about. I, I don't... <laughs> I have been using DynamoDB for a long time for a lot of different things. And this is something that I am personally super, super excited about. I cannot tell you how many times I have had to write some model wrapper around the DynamoDB call and having that kind of like, oh, is it actually empty? Or do I have to cast it to an empty value? Or, but that's not what's in the database. Uh, so I think this is something, if you look at, you know, if, if you've been using DynamoDB, you've probably hit this a dozen times. You've probably been on threads requesting this feature. And it's great to see the DynamoDB team ship this. This is really customer obsessed work. And uh, I think it makes DynamoDB even better than it was before. Um, and, and Nick, I mean, we, we've, been, we've been using DynamoDB for some of our other projects. And so, you know, what do you think about this? This is like, you know, I, I, I mean, I think Dynamo has a lot of amazing things going for it. And this is just kind of like, this just makes it even better. Yeah, I, I think this really like, when you talk about the the problem you want Dynamo to solve and the value proposition that it, that's pitched with, which is this, you know, let's say infinitely scalable key value database. When you try to enter an empty string, which is, I think anyone here would agree, is a is a value should hold a value. To get this error, just sort of seems like a, an implementation detail of how it was built, leaking into the customer or the developer experience. Um, and so, you know, there there are reasons for why this may have been the way it is, but I think that the overwhelming sort of feedback was like, hey, this is a very uh, you know rough usage case. And so, you know, 
that fix has, in my opinion, been a long time coming. I, again, I understand there are reasons why it, it may have been that way, but I think that this is, especially if you're using Dynamo for the first time, right? If you're onboarding onto the service, it feels like this is just one of those gotchas and one of those roadblocks that you will inevitably face and be like, oh, wow, I would have never predicted that it would behave that way. And so it's really nice to remove this sort of thing that I think that is very high up on the funnel in the DynamoDB user experience and something that will affect a lot of people. So yeah. very happy to see that. Absolutely. And just to kind of bring it home concretely, if you work with DynamoDB a lot, what this will allow you to do is when you read a value back, you do not have to insert placeholder values to in, in place of empty, right? And let's say you have a, a use case where you allow a username to be empty. Or sorry, you don't, you don't want to... You want to be able to store the empty username, but let's say you want the user to change it on the first login. Making this up, right? What, the way you used to be able to do this is you either left it as... You, you, ha- you couldn't store an empty value. So when you... Yeah. So a question in, in uh, LinkedIn is, can I repeat the, the, um, the DynamoDB feature? Yeah. So this is DynamoDB as of last month allows you to now store the, an empty value for a string or a binary attribute that is not a key attribute. Right. So what this means is, let's say you have a, um, an, uh, an item in the table and uh, it has an ID. So the ID is, if the ID is the key, you cannot store an empty ID. I think, I think we can all agree that that makes sense. But if, let's say you have another property there, another field called name. You can store empty the empty value in that name field of type string now, whereas before you couldn't. And so the workarounds before were, well, I can't store empty value in it, so let me just go and store, you know, invalid underscore name in all caps. And you would scan for that special value to know that this was a placeholder for an invalid value. Really, just kind of. But what you would really like to do is, let's say, if you're using JavaScript, you just want to do like you know, bang, bang that, that field to know to cast into a Boolean. Well, now you can do that, right? So I think it's these small things that these like tiny little quality of life improvements that, um, that I think have an outsized effect on, on you know, how, how many people can, uh, can get up and running with the product without any kind of surprises. So I think that's... We've said plenty about the future, but I, I think it's, you know, check it out. If you're a DynamoDB user, you're going to be happy. If you're not a DynamoDB user, this makes DynamoDB even better. But I really want to get into demos now. Yeah. All right. We won't hold you up any further. We've got three very exciting demos. First up, again, I know many people coming back to the broadcast. We, first up, we have Code Artifact, the newest, uh, entire, entirely new service launched this week by uh, AWS, followed by uh, Nep- Amazon Neptune Graph database integration for database migration service, as well as 3D point cloud integration or workflows for Amazon SageMaker GroundTruth, which has some really cool LiDAR data collection and labeling uh, later on. That'll be our third demo. First up, without any further ado, we're going to be talking about AWS Code Artifact. Before we get into the launch, we are joined by the illustrious Richard Boyd, Senior Developer Advocate from AWS DevTools. Richard, thank you for taking the time today. Thanks for having me, Nick. Thanks for having me, Rob. Richard, it's great to have you on the show. We've talked a lot about your work at AWS, (laughs) and I'm excited to have you as a guest here and uh, to help us uh, demo some cool new features we're launching. That's great to hear. Yeah, usually after people talk about my work, they're not excited to have me on their show, but it's, it's good to see the change of pace. Yeah, a little bit of a self shout out here, but uh, if you're if you're a, uh, a resident viewer here on Twitch.tv slash AWS, Richard may be familiar. He some, has some of his own shows, um, and we uh, we wanted to have him on for for this one. We think it's a big launch. We know that this is very exciting, but we don't want to steal your own thunder. We're talking about AWS Code Artifact today. How, is this as exciting as I've made it sound? It is super exciting. So this is something that's been. Um, uh, 
I don't want to describe it as like a long time in the works, but anytime we launch a new like code service product at reInvent or at another event, the first thing people will say to us is like, that's great. Where's Code Artifact? And like the name came from customers and the customers would say, you know, all the things you have, those are fine, but I want something that'll like store my stuff when I'm done building and compiling it and it's ready for production. You could even name it something like Code Artifact. So the actual, the name for this came from co- several customers. I don't think there's one specifically who, who named it. I'm um, saying like, this is what you should name it. And this is what it does. So that's how I got its name. It, it is easily the most asked for service within the code suite. Okay, that's a so now we're doing service naming by committee now. Interesting. I know we always say we, we want we love customer feedback, but uh, yeah, I mean that opens up the door for a lot of questions I have. But largely, it's just like if customers are not only feeling a pain point, but describing an entire service they want us to build in and specking out the features it would have. I think this sort of answers my own question. But like, what are the main pain points that this is serving essentially? Um, so a lot of it's because Code Artifact is fully managed that you don't have to worry about you know setting up your own like server to host um, your actually the artifacts that you want to store. You don't have to configure that. Do security patches on the operating system. Uh, some customers have taken to just using S3 as a generic storage service. So they'll just dump their stuff into S3 and they'll fetch it out. Spend a lot of their time, like Rob mentioned, uh, writing wrappers around that so they could somewhat like natively integrate their um, their PIP or their Maven client um, to, to some endpoint and it kind of redirects it. I even made something similar to this before I rejoined Amazon. I called it my serverless PyPy and it was just S3 API gateway and Lambda and it worked, right? I mean, it wasn't ideal. Um, and it was like a proof of concept to show like something like this is possible so that I, I, we could you know federate some artifacts across accounts. We had a very specific use case for it and we we kept the use case very narrow. But like things like this, people are building like their own solutions that they're, they're good. They, they solve like that customer pain point, but it also comes with some operational burden to have to like maintain that. Offering this is just a fully managed self-service pay-as-you-go service it, it was the right way to go. And I understand that it has a significant number of features beyond just serving as a flat file store, right? Because you mentioned this kind of duct tape solution that's built on top of S3. But can you talk about some of the features that that take it way beyond S3? Yeah, so it integrates with uh, Maven, PyPy, NPM, and Gradle today. So you can just use the same client if you're using like you know pip install. And we'll sh- I'll show you in the demo. We're just do pip install or use Twine to publish it. Uh, Python is one of those special ones that has separate tools for publishing and consuming artifacts, which I've never really understood, but it's the way it works. Um, and it also does a lot of like deduplication, which is I'll just jump right into like the the parts of it. Right. So the, at the highest level, we have what's called a domain. And we expect customers would have just a single domain for their entire organization. Internally at Amazon, we have a single domain um, that's shared by AWS and Amazon called the Amazon domain. Your company can have whichever domain name you want. It's not like a DNS name. It's just a logical grouping. And all artifacts are hashed and deduplicated within a domain. So if you've got 10,000 teams all sharing, like each of them has like their own copy of... Uh, let's say BotoCore or Boto3 or some internal company package, that artifact is only stored one time. So you're not storing 10,000 copies of this. And if you're using some of these other solutions that people like myself previously, it's just like built yourself, every team would have like in their own S3 bucket, a copy of this. You have to keep all those updated. You end up with 10,000 copies of it. You're also paying to store 10,000 copies of this thing. So once you achieve like a 
a decent sized scale, it does become cheaper than storing in S3 because we do some intelligent stuff about deduplicating the assets. Now, within a domain, you can have many repositories. We expect the customers will only have a few, probably one repository for development, one for testing, and then one for the like production assets that anyone can use in production. We don't expect there to be thousands of repositories within a domain. We certainly support it. We don't want to tell customers they can't do something, uh, but we think that they'll get the best experience if they if they narrow it down to, to just a few. The way I like to describe it is that for a lot of resources in AWS, you do the best if you have less than five of something or more than a thousand. Right. If you have less than five, you can, if you need to make a change, you can do it manually and it doesn't take you a month and a bunch of planning to, to do this. You have to go in and manually change something on all of these. Under five, it's probably not worth automating. Um, if you're at over a thousand, the only way to do it right is to automate it. So you have to invest in like building the right automation tools. When you get this weird case where you've got 76 of something, uh, where it's like, it, it becomes a pain. Like you might try to do updates manually um, or not do it right, or it's not quite worth investing enough to automate the effort. So we think that customers will have just either just a few repositories or thousands. I haven't seen a use case in our private preview customers where customers want thousands. I'd certainly love to talk to customers who, who find that use case uh, just to better understand that. But we think most customers will get by with just a few. And then within a repository... Yeah, I mean, now that you're talking about the case for storing thousands, that's kind of making me wonder, can I use this as a proxy for NPM, let's say? Uh, yeah, so those are all in the repositories. So um, you can store like thousands of untold numbers of packages within a repository. Uh, this was a, a thing that came up during our private preview as well, is like what we name this thing. When I think of repository, I think of something like a code commit or a Git repository. It's more like some places would call it like a registry, um, and it just stores pointers to packages. So you could you could definitely replicate NPM in inside of a single repository. What's really cool about this is that inside a single repository, you could replicate NPM, Maven Central, and PyPy. So you have one single endpoint that every team in your company that's using a supported package manager would all point to, and they don't have to worry about having separate permissions on three or four or five different package management endpoints. And, and, and let, me, let me fill in a blank here. You tell me if this is kind of overreaching what the product is intended to do, but you can then kind of say, this is the set of packages that we've been that have been reviewed and approved for use and trying to install a package that is not within this particular registry will fail, right? Correct. That's one use case for it. Another one is that you can you can use like the IAM permissions that you're already using to restrict access to doing a deployment to the package manager. So you're only managing permissions in like a fewer number of places. You can apply resource policies to a repository that says anyone can publish here from this group um, as long as they're in like as long as they're trying to publish to this namespace. So npm and Maven have this concept of a namespace. Python doesn't, but there's some ways to get around it or to kind of simulate a namespace. So you can apply some of the IAM tricks as, as you will to like restricting access and controlling. Uh, someone can publish or consume from this, but they must be coming from inside our corporate network. They can only do it, you know, during the working day. They can only do it what all the I could go into like an hour long lesson on an IAM conditionals, but you can reuse a lot of the same access control tools. So you're not, you know, trying to manage credentials across three or four or five different repository types. Yeah, I hope we get a, a minute to check that out during the demo. Yep. Yeah. When I hear fully managed, uh, there's just a few like big 
things that come to mind, I, I start to think like security. I mean, we just touched on the granularity of, of IAM permissions and that that should be somewhat uh, easy to get up and running with if you're already using IAM already. Scalability. I mean, if it's, you know, we said before, untold number of packages. I, I don't know if that's a very technical unit of measurement, but I think the, uh, the idea is that like scaling up in terms of the number of, of repositories or number of packages that you store in terms of the... Uh, size uh, of all those objects should be a, a non-factor essentially, right? Yeah, I did, I did a, like a back of the envelope calculation when we're going into uh, you know, private preview saying like, what's this going to cost? Like what's, what's when a customer, when the average customer uses, what are they going to end up paying? And I think no one hold me to this because I'm not very good at math. I think replicating all of NPM JS was like $700 a month. In store and like in the cost. And if you think about, it, I think there's something like 15 million packages on NPMJ. There's some huge number. It's, that's every package, every version of every package at NPMJ. I, I basically just like looked at the size and the number of packages from uh, their CouchDB backup that they published. Um, so that's one part of it is like, uh, yeah, it does scale to like, I couldn't think of a bigger package manager, public package manager than NPMJS to get an idea for. Another thing is the, the availability, right? Because under the hood, we are storing these assets in S3. So we're getting the benefits of S3's durability and availability just out of the box. So if you upload a package to Code Artifact, I think what is 11.9, I believe, is the, the SLA for, for S3. And when you upload this, like, it's not going anywhere. I think 11.9 turns into like one byte every 10,000 years or something along these lines. I'm not sure what the, uh, the actual equivalent of this 11.9 is, but it's, it's, it's super available, super durable, um, because we're built on top of this like very strong foundation of S3. We just do a lot of the, the deduplication. You know, saves you some money once you reach a scale. So I've got a question, and and this is again to the point. It's not on durability, but on the fact that this is built on S3 as a backbone for storage. Like one thing I'd imagine is that if I have much older versions of packages, maybe they're not actively in use at all. Um, I mean, I want to get rid of them, but I want to be able to, you know. I don't need them available instantly in the way that I do any packages that are currently in my modern builds. Is there a way through Code Artifact to sort of lifecycle manage these older versions of packages to move them into colder storage with S3 to save money on them in the long term? There is a native way to do that today. It is a feature that's on our roadmap and we are looking at that is that customers want to say, I want the last four packages or I want any pack, I want at least one package, but all of the packages have been published in the last six months. So it's more of like a time bound. We don't want to do is like if someone publishes a package then doesn't update it for six months because it's doing great. And then we just time it out and it disappears. So there's a, there's a few use cases we're trying to capture and we're really trying to get a better sense of how customers use this and as it drives our, our roadmap for the next six to nine months. The, the use case I'm fixated on is using it as an NPM proxy because it's such a common use case. So I, I'm wondering, like, yep. can I can I create a um, can I just uh, if I just have a package uh, lock JSON file, can I just upload that and have Code Artifact instantly turn into an NPM proxy scoped specifically for my modules and versions? Um, I'm not super familiar with. Um how that would work. But I do know there is something that you could do that I think accomplishes that. So let me tell you one of the features that I know works that I've, I've played with, and you tell me how, how much I've missed the mark. You can set your repository to have an upstream that upstreams NPMJS or um, the PyPy repository or Maven Central. And then you as a client will point just at your repository and any 
you know, cache hit any hit, any miss, cache miss on that repository, it'll go and try and get from npm JS. And it only does that once. It'll pull it in for that specific version that you requested. So the next time you request it, it's already there in your repository waiting for you. This way you can say, okay, everyone must go through this endpoint. So you get like the, the VPC security. If you want to say none of this traffic should go over the public internet, it must stay inside the VPN. You can say, um, you know, NPM install and you're pointing at this public or this code artifact repository that you have. It will then proxy the request for you to NPM JS. It'll save like a cached version of that uh, and then return the assets to you. And then anyone else in your org could could then use them or anytime anyone else in the domain tries to, for any other repository that shares a domain, tries to make a request, they'll get it from this cached version instead of having to make another request out to the public internet. So this avoids a lot of the issues like the left pad incident that happened a few years ago where somebody said, you know what, not open source anymore and just took down their package and it was gone. And a lot of stuff broke and NPMJS had to make a, a very tough decision in a very short amount of time to say like, how, what do we do here? Uh, Companies can avoid this. Like if the package is open source and they, and they consume it, they already have it cached. They don't have to worry about it then disappearing from some external. They don't have a dependency, third-party, nonprofit organization. Yeah, I, I think that's that's ninety-five percent of the future, right? I think the only other thing that's missing from what I described would be to do this once and then go in there and then lock it and say, "So I want to upstream this thing and cache it in once, and then I want to cut it off from the upstream." Yeah, you can do that. So um, I'll show you that in the console today that you can oh, say, okay, this is, this is an upstream repository. This is usually done as like a bootstrapping mechanism where you say, okay, everything that's in here has a legacy exemption. It's just, we can't review everything, but like, you know, you have, do your installs today to get the packages you need. And then tomorrow we're going to say no more. Um, or you can auto like, programmatically do it and fetch these packages. And I can uh, walk you through the console, like where that would be set. This is incredibly exciting. I, I, just, just I mean, there's so much, there's so much to cover here. I'm sorry that we're taking longer to get the demo than, than <laughs> you probably would like, but but it sounds like not. This is just we're kind of diving deep into one use case here, right? But it, it occurs to me that there's so many other use cases, right? I mean, we talked about the NPM left pad incident, but one of the common things that you can do with with node applications or any applications that have this kind of third party registry mechanism is that you can bundle the dependencies together with your artifact, and you can create an immutable package that is deployable with the node modules folder intact. Right. Yeah. And as I understand it, tell me if I'm wrong, but Code Artifact can serve as the registry for that immutable package version itself. That application. Yeah. You can, right? yeah um, so uh, Boto 3 does this, right? We call it vendoring packages uh, that you, you say, okay, I want to depend on these things, requests, and requests is a, is a common one that it, it takes and it vendors, which means that it keeps the, the package w with the, the actual file itself stored. Uh, with the package itself. And then that whole thing is vended out so that when someone goes to consume Boto3, they're getting the request library with that as a package. They're not making a subsequent request because it's a dependency. It's like built into the package. And Code Artifact can store packages that are like that. So, right. And, and then I think the trade off there is that now you have an immutable tested version of the package with all of its dependencies intact that you're deploying to your, your production fleet or your, your testing fleet or whatever. And there's none of this, there's just not an interaction with the registry at all when during the deployment phase. Correct. Yeah, you could do that. Yeah. 
Yeah. I was also going to say awesome. uh, with, with respect to Rob's point of like an immutable deployment of your application set or like the all the materials necessary for that deployment. Like in the machine learning space, there has been a very rough edge around the idea that you can have your code and your configs stored through Git. But oftentimes your actual model is this massive file that you never want to check in directly into Git. And so people have always used things like S3 to be able to, you know, check those, um, you know, or, or not check in, but like to deposit their models. And then in the config, they have a pointer pointing to that S3 object and they'll pull that in on build time or deployment time. But you still, your promise is only as strong as that, how, how, how like immutable that link is that you made in your config. And the answer is, you know, that's up to everyone's responsibility to do that. This sounds like, especially for ML folks, you can now sort of bundle your entire own, uh, your, your model, your code, your config all in one with code artifacts in a way that a lot of current managed Git repositories or Git, Git, uh, you know, Git repository tools don't allow you to. So this is super exciting. We have a couple questions from LinkedIn. Do we want to go through those, Richard? Sure, let's let's hear. Okay, so first question is: Any plans to support Go modules? Uh, yes. So we've received quite a f- quite a bit of feedback on like specific package managers. I don't know if this is a controversial opinion or not, but software engineers are very passionate about their specific language and package manager. Um, so regardless of which package managers we chose, we knew that somebody would be disappointed that theirs wasn't selected. Uh, so we recognize this. We are working on it. NuGet is like the most common one that we're seeing. It's, it's one that we're working on. Um, I don't have a timeline for it right now, but it is, it's in the pipe. I, okay. I think as uh, as Andy Jassy likes to say, uh, this expression, in the fullness of time, I, we opened the broadcast saying time yes. is a finite resource, unfortunately. <laughs> but again, keep voicing your opinions. We want to be able to deliver the features that you want. And, and in the fullness of time, we I hope that uh, Rich can deliver all of those features, all of those, all those different package managers. But, uh, you know, <laughs> time- in the fullness of time is such a deep way to open any statement, right? Andy Jassy, the philosopher, yes. as always. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, any plans for IPv6 with segment routing? I'm not sure what the uh, context was. Maybe the asker can uh, fill us is out. That, is, that for the, is that for the DNS announcement that you had made? Uh, so I think they're just saying, can we, can we address the, the, the endpoint for the code artifact with IPv6? I think so. Can you get a DNS name today for it? Um, and then the DNS will just resolve to an IP address. Which could be IPv. I'd have to test that. I don't. The answer is I don't know. Um, I think the, my official response is supposed to be uh, it's not my area of expertise. I can ask someone else. I don't know the answer to that question. I probably should know that. Have whoever asked that question, if you're still watching, feel free to email me at rhboyd at amazon.com and I'll get you an answer. Wow. It's, uh, it's all recorded. It's live. There's no taking that back, Rich. But uh, all right. Yeah, it's fine. Okay. It's... Right. Look, enough teasing us, Rich. Please. Like, I want to see it. Yes. Rob wants to okay. see it. I'm speaking Let's... on his behalf. I know, I know the audience wants to see it. Just get to it. Come on. Cool. Okay. So let me share my screen. So this is the, the landing page for Code Artifact. Customers can go into this and see it. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time just reading this to people. Let's create a, an application. Let's, let's create a repository. I'm going to call this Rob's Repo. Uh, description, I'll leave blank. So this is where I was talking about the upstream. So I could say this is linked to an upstream repository. And the way we do this is we actually create a separate code artifact repository that just serves as the public proxy. So if I were to select this one uh, for PyPyStore and let's say NPM store, um, 
this would actually create three repositories. And because we deduplicate the assets and we only charge you for the amount of stuff that's stored, this costs the same whether you have got one or five or no upstream thing. So it's not like we're trying to get people, we're making more repositories so we can charge people more. It costs you the same whether you use them or don't. So let's just, we'll leave these two on here. And then it'll ask for what account the domain is in. So where do I want this repository stored? We'll just say this account. And then there's the domain that I created earlier. It's an A domain I named the domain because I'm not very creative with names. <laughs> and here's a, a, an image of what this looks like, a graphic of what this looks like. So this is where this Rob's repo is where your developers will push packages to and pull packages from. And then this PyPy store and NPM store, these are code artifact repositories that we'll see in just a moment that live here. And their sole purpose is to proxy requests for the rest of the org. Part of this is due to a technical limitation. A repository can have an upstream that's one of two types. You can either have a single external connection or you can have up to 10 internal upstreams. So you could nest these. I could say that Rob's repo um, has an upstream of Richard's repo, which then has an upstream of the PyPy store, which then goes public. You can chain them however deep you want if you want to apply resource policies at various stages to better confine what packages can or can't come into various repositories. However deep I want. What if I made this a can of worms? I make a circular um, linked list yeah. of repo upstreams. Um, oh, does it catch circular sure. dependencies? Yeah. I will have to ask the the service team. I, th I know that there's a couple of limits. Um, I just don't know them off the top of my head. <laughs> I know that it's 10. So this repository can only point to, we only have five um, public ones that are listed now, but you can only have 10 internal or one external. So this is kind of the way we address that. Um, Richard, I, I think yeah, let me, you, let me find you just a, created the, the subject for your next stream, creating a, yeah, a yeah, circular uh, uh, dependency in, in upstream repos. It's like a perpetual yeah. money spending my, machine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my, my biggest fear is that I have an unread email saying, do not mention circular repositories in your stream today. Oh, yes. Yes. I can but, send you that email if you want. But, <laughs> yeah. Well, you just gave out your email uh, to the, the world. Is just you just gave your email to the world. So yeah, any sure. of the 10,000 people that are watching can go and send Richard that email. Yeah. <laughs> they can they could. Okay. Let me let me rephrase that. I'm afraid I have that unread message from someone who has the authority to fire me. <laughs> All right. So we'll create the repository. This is what I'm just going to create and then we'll go work on one I created earlier. Um, and we see that it has no packages in it. We'll look at another repository later that actually has packages in it. But this is how you create a repository using a domain that already exists. You could create a domain if you wanted to, but like I said, we think most customers would will get away with just a single domain. Uh, what I really like about the console here is this connection instructions, which this is what I, I love about this is that you can say which package managing client are you using, let's say PIP, and it will show you the commands you need to run from the CLI to get it to work. So there's nothing I hate more than when I trying to use some tool and it's like, great, you have a thing. And it's like, well, how do I get, how do I get this to use it to work? And they're like, well, here's a 600 page user guide. Like I'm sure you'll figure it out. And just trying to understand like what, what is or isn't required, parsing a lot of very technical documentation. Like I don't do so well in that. Um, I, so this is, I will go as far as to say is like, there's always this debate of like, do you use the console? Do you use the CLI? Like, and, and I think the honest answer is like, most people don't fall entirely in one or the other. And so like, 
actually accepting that on our side and developing tools that facilitate that handoff from the times where you want to spend time in the console and times where you want to spend in the CLI is something I'm a huge fan of. So thank you. This is a cool feature. Nick, I disagree. I think Richard is actually doing this entire demo from the console. The window he didn't want to show is him using the command line to drive the mouse movement and automate all of this stuff. Huh. I mean, he that's is, what it is. He, he is addicted to the CLI. If I know anything about Richard, it is that one thing. <laughs> that's, Richard, that's what it is. It's my. Uh, I'm using the Python web browser and I'm pushing all of this. Is, is this show it's even live? Ruse. Is this show even live? Is Richard more than a pile of lambda functions punching <laughs> a lexbot? Like I don't oh, know. Like what? I need. I need see. I need like today's newspaper, like a proof of life to, to hold up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Something that's hard to fake. Can we see the the setup commands for uh, npm? Uh, yes. So they're only slightly different. So you say code artifact login. So what this login does is it allows you to trade your IAM credentials, which is a username and access key secret key or access key secret key and token. And you trade this for a type of credential that the package manager protocol speaks, right? So uh, PyPy uses basic auth. I think uh, NPM uses the same, just username and password and a header and the authentication header. Um, and SIG v4 is a bit more. There are problems with that type of authentication mechanism, uh, but in the very narrow use case of like a package manager, it makes sense to use that. We didn't want to force people, okay, now you have to like kind of use your NPM tool, but also use this other thing for auth. So we have this mechanism, it's called login, um, is the command that you run, and it will swap your AWS IAM credentials for credentials that your NPM package manager can read um, and that those are what you would supply with your request. And then you say basically where you want to log into. I want to register for this repository in this domain. I definitely should have picked a better name because that's confusing now. And you have to specify a domain owner because I could have a domain in my account called like Richard's domain and uh, Nick could have a domain in his account called Nick's domain. And I could have or also named Richard's domain. I'm not really sure why Nick would have that, but he might. And I might have permission to update some repository that's in both of those. So we have to be very explicit and say, this is the actual domain that I want. And it's a domain with this name that has this owner, which is better than the original idea was like the domain R, which is like this very long string. So it's a bit more human friendly when we're talking about a CLI action. So what this will do is this will actually update your, um, I believe the files NPMRC, I think is what it's called. You probably know more than I would, but there's an actual like file that saves your NPM credentials on your machine. Running this command will update that for you. If you don't trust the CLI for whatever reason, or you don't want to persist that stuff to a specific file, what you can do is there's this manual step that we also show that shows like how to get the actual token itself that's that's used. Um, this is just an AWS CLI command that's run, and it saves it in an environment variable. And then, yeah, this shows you how to you know configure this NPMRC file. Perhaps you don't want to use your home directory's NPMRC file. Maybe you're doing this in a Lambda function, and you don't have access to the home directory because it's not writable because of the Lambda's model. We also show you like how you could do this. So you could use a Lambda function that like publishes packages or consumes packages inside that Lambda function if you want to do some kind of your own like custom replication or you know package filtering and whatnot. Love it. That that uh, just got completely ahead of my question of what a, what is this login? Yeah. yeah, so the login's like the simple one. We think most people will get by with the login. You can just take this, slap it into a code build action, and you're done. 
if you want to get like more into the weeds and you want a, a, t- a finer control over kind of what's happening with the token, maybe you want to inspect if the token hasn't turned into a duck while you weren't paying attention, you can do the manual step and, and see the actual token itself. I say that, but I had to do that this morning when I was troubleshooting something on my end. I need to jump in here with two more questions from LinkedIn. Uh, this one has actually come up. This is by uh, Hamid KY, who is a big data engineer. Thank you for the question, Hamid. And he asks, um, how does it integrate with popular CI pipeline tools such as Jenkins? Um, you should be able to. So if you're already using Jenkins with the rest of your AWS infrastructure, you probably already have some mechanism set up to supply credentials to your Jenkins worker. Uh, this is usually done with either a plugin or uh, setting environment variables or whatnot. Because this is just a uh, an AWS CLI command, if you're already using the AWS CLI within Jenkins for some other aspect, maybe using it for deploying some asset or updating a Lambda function or writing to S3, this will, quote unquote, just work running this AWS login. On a Jenkins worker, I'm not sure how well this is, like the the auto approach would work because I don't know like how home directories are structured in some Jenkins workers, but this manual step will definitely work as long as it has access to call to run the AWS CLI and hit the CLI endpoints. We do have VPC endpoint support, so you can say uh, only access this from inside my network. Then it'll just work. They could run these commands. They'll get the, the artifacts. They paste them into whatever their run config is, or you know their bash script or whatever it is they run inside of Jenkins, and it'll quote-unquote, just work. I say that, but I know I'm going to get a bunch of angry emails where I tried this and it didn't just work. So I will be sorting through those all night. All right. Well, anytime I see a done button on the screen, it gives me anxiety and begs me to just <laughs> press it right away. So <laughs> unless there's anything else to cover. Uh, on the yeah. No, this done, um, the done it just closes it. It's this uh, view connections instructions. You can open this up anytime you want. It's not just there the first time you create a repository. So let's... We're actually going to work be working in uh, Richard's repo that I created earlier. We'll see that like I have some packages in here, Boto3, Boto Core, uh, cryptography, some basic NumPy with the, the versions in there. And we see that this message of the day is a package that I made uh, that has no version because I deleted them from the demo. So let's go in and like look at how we would publish a package to Code Artifact and how we could consume some. I'm inside of Cloud9 now. This is a, a very basic um, Python PyPy package. If I had known Rob was such an NPM uh, aficionado, I would have just done an NPM package instead. I didn't. I didn't read the audience ahead of time. I read the room ahead of time. I'm just one of the hosts. The audience is what matters. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that even if I do a Python, so I was like, "Why didn't you do Java? Why didn't you do Maven? Like, why do you hate Maven?" It's okay. I mean, so, some people will be upset. Hopefully, more people will be happy. But we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, someone did message me. Um, so the domain owner option is only needed if you don't own the domain. So it's optional. You can supply it if you want to. It's redundant if you already own the domain. But if it's a domain in another account, you have to specify the owner. So just to clarify a, a comment I made earlier. Um, so this is, we give the package a name, a version. I think that's all that you technically is, is required. We give it some classifiers and we say that it has a dependency. And then I can run, go back through some of these. Python, this setup script, and this is what packages your application. This is the same way you would package if you're trying to put it into you know, PyPy proper um, or another like, artifact management system. This is just bundling it as a and wheel, it's, uh, essentially. It's, uh, 
Yep, exactly. But I am kind of sad that neither one of you called me out for like packaging this thing to publish it into PyPy or into like my own PyPy manager without testing it first. Like there could be untold things in here. Okay, so the test pass. Look, Rich, we have a um, mutually established amount of trust, right? Like that I trust that you won't <laughs> yeah. have like, you know, a hawk fly down and, and tear you away from the camera in the middle of this very important session, right? This, this relationship is built on trust. It, it, it could happen. <laughs> exactly. All right, yeah, so we, we built this. So I tested it. Ideally, I would have tested it before I built it, but it's all good. And then we get this, the build file and the dist file. So this is what we're talking about with the, the wheel. Let me, there we go. The wheel file, the actual contents, the tar GZ. And then, let me go up. Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a page out of Nikki's playbook. I'm actually gonna put this into the repo we just created. I'm just getting the instructions from here. So this is going into copy. This is in my clipboard. While you're copying this over, Rich, we got a question from Nacho Pants in the Twitch chat wondering, is uh, having an excellent beard a prerequisite for using this technology? Because they're a little worried and intimidated that they, they won't be able to use it without that. Um, I don't have an excellent beard. I just have a beard that's longer. But no, it is not a prerequisite. Anyone with or without a beard can use this technology however they want. Good. Wonderful. Thank you yeah. for the clarification. There are, there are very few prerequisites. I, I, have, I am not super qualified and I, I do okay with it. So I think that most of our users will, will enjoy it. So now that I've I have logged I am now logged in. This is a command I told you about it. It goes and I would show you the pipe the PyPI RC file that it changed, but that actually has my credentials in it. So if I show it on the screen, I'm gonna get yelled at. So I'll need you to take me at my word that that file was uploaded in that step. Rich, don't make me hit the trapdoor button. I'm sorry. I got it right here on my stream deck. <laughs> sorry. Continue. And then we're going to say twine upload. And then we give it this the directory that we want to upload, which is uh, you know, the distribution directory. And now we can go back to code artifact and we see the message of the day. Um, so that's how I put an asset into here. But let's say I wanted to like, fetch something. I, I had said that this depends on Boto3, which isn't in that repo. So I could say, there's one thing. So because Python does like pip and twine are separate, one's for fetching packages and one is for consuming them. In this specific case, we have to, I believe we have to set this up twice just to be safe. Okay. So if I do pip install uh, upgrade, just in case I already have it, Boto3. See, this might all right, so this is already satisfied because I had it. What's what's your favorite Python package? We'll try to anybody, anyone in the chat. What's your favorite Python pandas, package? Pandas, pandas. Love love me some pandas. Panda. Okay, so we're getting this from Code Artifact. Download. We got NumPy, PyTZ, and pandas, and it's done. So if we go to Code Artifact, we will see that those packages are now in in this repository as well. So pandas, NumPy, and PyTZ. Because it, it went to my repository and said, hey, do you have this? It said no. And then it went to the upstream um, and then fetched those and then it stored them here. So th this is really cool. I mean, so, again, I know I keep harping on like AI machine learning use cases, but it's like there are scenarios where like some of these open source computational libraries or frameworks like NumPy, like pandas are, are inherently generalizable. But like, let's say you know what infrastructure it's going to run on and you want to make some optimizations under the hood, but you don't want to like make breaking changes to your code or even change your code at all. A scenario I imagine here is like, okay, well, I can just still call it pandas and we have our internal version that runs optimally on the instances that, you know, I'm going to use my 
deploy my ML model on. And if it doesn't find it there and it's a cache miss, it's just going to go and find the public version from like PyPy, right? Yes. Yep. Awesome. That'll work. Awesome. Yeah. So you can publish you can publish your own version. I'd have to check. I assume that like that could also be a bit of a security consideration. That like some of the packages might be signed in some way to keep like someone malicious from like sticking a random package in that exfils credentials. So like the pieces are there. Like technically, I think that 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 should work. But I wouldn't be surprised if there were some packages or some mechanisms for like publishing packages that had some kind of signing ability that they would see that, oh, this is something that has this name, but some signature doesn't match. So it's either you have a, it'll give you a very loud warning, will work, or you have to like silence the warning. But all the pieces should be there. All right, so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to edit the upstreams. And this is like the example I talked about before. I'm going to remove the, the PyPy upstream. Right? So now the way that it's set up is that if anyone wants to install something, let me say pip, let me uninstall Bodo and try and reinstall it. Uninstall Bodo 3. Yes. And then try to reinstall it. And this is going to fail because it's not in my repository. Um, and then it, I've turned off the ability to go to the upstream repositories. So people can only use what's in the repository now. Um, there are things that you can do to apply security policies that allow someone to uh, upload packages or like associate upstream repositories based on your access control. You might have a central IT team that, that does this and then end users who just consume the packages. It depends on your organizational structure. Richard, I have a couple more questions for you from chat. This is, this is sure. one of the most... <laughs> I, I can't remember the last demo where we had so many questions. Richard, you're doing a fantastic job because people get this, right? I think everybody is feeling the pain. Awesome. Everybody is feeling the value. And I think everybody has just seen how easy it is, especially with this upstream feature, the ability to disassociate, the, the fine-grained control this gives you over your you know over all of these different popular uh, package registries. But these questions, the first question here is from Kuma Ravel. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but... Uh, they ask, is there any options to do a, a auto-deployment to EC2 instances when developer push a new art, pushes a new artifact? Uh, yes, you can definitely do that. So the way I would see something like this working is that anytime a new artifact is put into the repository, it kicks off CloudWatch. Like a CloudWatch event is, is published when a new package is added. Uh, CloudWatch event, event bus, or you have CloudWatch event straight into a code pipeline. Code pipeline is like a build step, picks it up, builds this particular package in with some other stuff, and then just use code pipeline for your regular deployment artifacts after that. So it's it's not like a straight, like, I push this into code artifact and suddenly my instances are already updating. Like, that could be a bit dangerous. But it is like, the infrastructure is there if someone wants to. I think at a high level, it's code artifact, event bus, code pipeline, code deploy. Yeah, and even if it's not code pipeline or code deploy, that event can just be the trigger for a Lambda yeah. and you run any arbitrary code that you want. So sort of the, the building blocks are all there. Yeah. Yep. Step functions. Uh, you can have it notify GitHub actions. You do it. You're only limited by your imagination. It's a great place to be. Next question from Samuel Omateo, who asks, don't you think this makes the security task more difficult if the developer could add authorization? I think he's referring to the, um, the the ability to log in and set the uh, configure the access for the for the repository from a development environment. Yes, so um, so you can apply uh, 
a resource policy to this. I don't, I don't have one. There are a couple of example ones that we have listed. So you can say on this repository, these particular people or I am principal. So it could be a user or it could be a role. You could federate it in with your active directory that you're already using. This group is allowed to create repositories. So this group is allowed to make this change to the repository, whether it's listing packages or listing versions or getting a specific package. So you can say that someone's allowed to get a package version only if, and then, you know, based on the R, you could say only if it has a specific prefix. So you're only allowed to get packages that are like scoped to dev or scoped to finance, if that's your functional area. So it's up to each particular team that deploys these to decide what's the best partitioning mechanism, whether they want to do it like functional by, you know, admin, HR operations, or if they want to do it um, logically by release. So the dev packages, test staging, prod packages. I don't think it makes it harder to, to because I actually think it makes it much easier. You can use the same IAM like access control tools you're already using to control access to your EC2 instances or control access to your Lambda functions or your ECR images and apply those same tools and things you already know to your artifact management system. Wonderful. Uh, anything else you wanted to show us in the, in the console over here with this new, uh, new repository? Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, somebody, somebody just pointed out that the person might have been asking about developers having access to control IAM. And this is true. If someone has unrestricted IAM access, they could just grant themselves more access inside of here, which is why we really push on this idea of like least privilege. Like your end user, like developer probably shouldn't have access to star star permissions. And, you know, we call it the administrator access policy. There are ways to enforce this cross account stuff. You could say, I trust anything in this other account to only do these very narrow things. And what someone does in that other account is entirely their business. But all I know that no matter what they do in that account, the most they could do on this repository is list a package or the most they could do is get a package version um, with some conditions. So there's, there's several ways to, to cut this, but. Yeah, that's and right. Your no, no was, gonna access. If you want to do that like a pro, STS assume role and yes. assume the role of an admin. <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> don't do that either. I'm just kidding. Just, <laughs> in case that wasn't clear, don't do that either. <laughs> it, it, is a, it is a way that, that will make it look like you have a scoped IAM policy. Yeah, and this is like I showed I turned off the upstream ability. Um, I noticed that someone could still NPM, so I couldn't actually... I could go into that same environment, do the login for NPM, NPM install, and we would see there would be NPM and PyPy packages kind of mixed in here together. So you, you do have, you do have the option to have them all stored in one place. If you wanted to, you could have four or five separate repositories that are partitioned like this. I think that that would be, um, it's like people who sort M&Ms by color, like they all taste the same, right? Like it's, you, you could say this package is only for PyPy packages. I don't see that being very useful in the, the most common case. And this, this is all I have for the demo. Um, is there a specific thing someone else wanted to see covered? Uh, I mean, in the, in, in the fullness of time, we would cover every topic uh, possible. <laughs> but unfortunately, time's a finite resource. I think we're going to have to move on in just a bit, but don't want to cane you off stage oh. too early. Uh, I wanted to ask, you know, are there any customers that, you know, you mentioned we talked to them before. Are there any that are using this already or that uh, can talk to sort of how it's helped them? Yeah, so um, Stackery is one of our public reference customers that we launched with. I believe the other one is... 
I know as soon as I say the name, I'm going to get an angry email saying it's the wrong one. I think it's BioRed is the name of the company. So we have a couple of customers. Stackery, I know for 100% certain they are a public reference customer. BioRed, I'm like 99% certain. They, they've talked about how it helps them control some of these packaged things. Uh, Stackery had mentioned that they were affected by something left pad-like where a package was you know, taken off of some something. Okay, it's BioRed. So I got a happy message. Um, so Zachary mentioned that they were previously affected by one of these left pad-like incidents. And now with Code Artifact, they're not. I, I love the dynamic we have here, Richard. You, you, you act as though there's like one mistake and the floor just falls off from beneath you and you get eaten by sharks. <laughs> I mean, that, why do you think Richard's background is uh, edited out? You know, we can't, yeah, we can't show yeah, that to exactly. the people at home. Well, I can't be trusted. Curveball questions at him and we're asking like question from China. Like, oh, no. Oh no! What is this one? <laughs> oh man! Oh, I for I I'm see. I I got a, a message saying that I did it right, but then as I expected, an angry message from the the GM. Amazon. Amazon's the biggest customer of uh, Code Artifact right now. We've been using internally thousands of engineers on hundreds of teams, maybe somewhere in the thousands of teams are all using this. Um, we use it across uh, Maven, PyPy, NPM. Uh, we beta test new packages, types, package manager types, like internally. Um, internally, they've been using it for a long time. I think our customers actually get something better here because internally, we're still using a slightly older version of this. And we made a lot of improvements that are focused on a better customer experience. And that's what we're releasing publicly. And we're migrating the internal teams to the newer, better experience. But customers get it first in this case. One of many services that uh, you know helps us solve problems internally that we then find a way to be able to package and, and solve the need for a customer. Definitely, definitely not the first and definitely won't yep. be the last. So really glad to hear yeah. that. Cool. Well, um, closing thoughts. Uh, folks are interested in getting started with Artifact. I know there is a launch blog post for setting up, you know, yes. what, essentially what we did today um, with Code Artifact. Uh, and there is also a document that outlines some best practices as well for using this, right? Yes. Let's see if I can Google it. So if I say Code Artifact, Best practices. Let's see what happens. Oh boy, Rich, we're we're going into a, uh, a un, unknown territory, yeah. uncharted territory here with the Google search. Okay, yeah. So yeah, if you Google this, uh, yeah, integrated code artifact and your package management flow best practices, we've documented a lot of things that we learned internally about like how this should be structured by using it within Amazon. It's written by John Standish. I helped him like edit it, and it covers a description of kind of like what are the concepts that are either new to this or slightly different than what people might expect or not inherently self-explanatory. And then how we think about domain ownership, how we think about sharing repositories, some of these opinionated best practices that I think customers will get a lot of value out of this. All right. Well, you, you rolled the dice with the Google search. You got straight sixes. It paid <laughs> off. Richard, thank you again for coming on for this segment, <laughs> talking uh, to us a little bit. Thanks for having me. About Code Artifact. Again, a very <laughs> exciting new service, freshly launched this week. But speaking of uncharted waters, uncharted waters are not where we are headed. We know exactly what is up next. And that is using AWS DMS, Database Migration Service, to move graph data from Relation Database to Amazon Neptune. A lot to cover That's here. Right. A lot of context, I think, and stage setting we can do to sort of help folks understand exactly why this is uh, as viable of a launch as I know it is. But without further ado, again, Karthik Varathi here. I'm sorry if I uh, mispronounced that, but Principal Product Manager from Amazon Neptune. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Nick and Rob.
Karthik, it's great to talk about this. This is a, a you know, Amazon Neptune is one of the most exciting releases we've announced recently. And as I understand it, this kind of makes it a lot easier to start using this when you're coming from a relational database. Right. So yeah, absolutely. take us through the high level and then we can start drilling in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are super excited uh, to have customers take their uh, connected data from relational databases and have that move to Neptune with the choice of models that they want with, with a few clicks. There's so many advantages of using DMS to, to do the job. Yeah. So before we even get into it again, I know many people may not be users of Neptune. They may have never used DMS before. I know for a fact there are many database users that haven't, unfortunately. What's DMS, Amazon DMS, and what is Amazon Neptune? Let's start us up the stage here. Yeah, sure. So DMS is uh, Amazon service to migrate data from one database to another in a secure and simple way. So, for example, if you're using, uh, you know, a relational databases that um, any of the ones that RDS supports, um, like RDS or uh, uh, MS SQL, you, you can use DMS to migrate that data. And, for example, you can have that in an Aurora database, right? Uh, but, but in our case, we, we, when we looked at customers, a lot of those, uh, relational data, which was essentially connected data was in, in any of those relational systems. And Neptune is purpose built to handle that connected data. So it's a graph database. So when you're building applications like a knowledge graph that's, that's connecting data from different sources, including relational, or if you're building a fraud detection application, essentially that's pulling data from relational databases as well. Like, you know, you can have your transaction data in your relational systems. Or if you're building an identity graph where you're trying to bring in uh, user data and device data, which, which can come from a relational database. So some of these data movement requires that, hey, that connected data be pulled from, copied over from the relational source. And DMS essentially helps you do that with, with Neptune being the purpose-built store for graph applications. Awesome. And so uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, we have a lot of different database solutions. Um, just to kind of dig a little bit further into Neptune, you mentioned a couple of these use cases. You know, what are, can you take us through into one of these scenarios? You mentioned that sometimes you have transactional data uh, transactions going on in the relational side of the database. You have connected data graphs going on in the, in the graph part of the database. Can we take a concrete example that ties all of this together and, and, and talk about like when you would detect that you need to do this migration? Sure. So typically, customers start with relational, right? For whatever it's it's been there for a while, or because maybe it's SQL, whatever the reasons may be. So they start off with that, and when your data set is really small, um, let's take a knowledge graph, right? And what what really it is, you're bringing in data from different sources. Let's say you, you travel to a new city. Paris, right? And you have different uh, points of interest that you can visit. Um, as a person, there are different people that that, that you, you can manage in, in a data store. And there are food preferences as well. Right now, I can think of easily three or four different databases that, that could fit this use case. Now, in such an application, like you, you have the relational database. And now what Neptune can do is bring all of these data sources in order, in order to build your knowledge graph and sort of if I were to say, hey, what are my points of interest or how quickly can I navigate through these different places in, in a day or what, what's, what's the restaurant I should be visiting in this new city? Those are typical recommendations or knowledge graph applications that I build off Neptune. Now, in order to do that, the data needs to get into Neptune. Now, if you could have your relational database, but if you're talking about the scale at which we're looking at connected data and the order of even billions or trillions of connected relationships, 
you don't want to be writing a SQL query that's joining data in order to provide that recommendation. So that's where you want the data to be in a purpose-built database to handle connected data, which is Neptune, and therefore customers need a way to do that migration. And that's where the DMS integration comes in. Yeah, so we're getting uh, we're getting some questions in chat around the relationship between DMS and Neptune and Aurora and RDS, all these other other services that are in the database space. But largely, again, database migration service helping customers perform either homogeneous migrations from a single uh, type of database to that same type of database or heterogeneous migrations, which is from one type to another, like let's say MySQL to a Postgres uh, traditionally would be an example of that, right? Uh, and you throw in your config with the with the source database and, and your target database and DMS handles all the provisioning and does it in a managed way. It stores your data in S3 with, as an intermediary and it provisions all the infrastructure to do that. And so again, Tying it all back today with Neptune, Neptune Purpose-Built Graph Database. I personally, anytime I work with customers, if they are not first aware of Neptune to solve their graph problems, uh, when they are made aware of it, uh, and, and they're like, all right, Nick, you, you, that's great. I want to use this tool. I want it to solve problems. One of the biggest roadblocks that I've seen them face has been actually getting their data in that graph format. Why don't we talk a little bit about that? Because that, in my opinion, that's one of the biggest roadblocks, right? Like, it's not just that using a graph database and the query language associated with it is, is one blocker, but actually just getting your data into that database is a tough problem or into that format. Right. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So today you could do it in one of many different ways with Neptune, right? You you could be an expert with um, uh, either the property graph model, we call that the Gremlin, Apache Tinkerpop Gremlin, or you could come from an RDF uh, resource description framework model where you're familiar with what's called a Sparkle. Now, if you're familiar with those query languages, great. Then you can write your insert query, like a query database query language, and then start loading your data. And if you're bulk loading a lot of information, you don't want to be doing that right on a, on a per record basis. So um, Amazon Neptune also provides a REST endpoint where you could bulk load the data and we support that for both the RDF and the property graph models. Um, and that, that, that's great. Still, you still have to know that, hey, here's the data format that I need to put, put the data in and then load the data. So now for a, for a relational, like a database developer coming from a relational background, they already have that in, in some schema and tables and views and whatnot, right? Now, having the DMS sort of streamlines the flow saying, okay, now I can get my data in. So what's what's my logical next step? I need to know the queries and I can start building my application. So that sort of eases your path into building uh, better graph applications. Yeah. So you talk about the... I, I'm curious, like maybe we can get more specific. Can I, can I do this by backing up my database into a physical file? If I wanted to get really manual with this, because you mentioned that if I know the if I know the query language, uh, I can do it that way. But what are some of the alternative ways to perform this migration manually? Yeah, you could do that. So, like, I mean, the data can be exported off uh, a relational database, and then you would have to understand what's the format of your uh, the Neptune data. And then the, for Gremlin, there there is a CSV file that we expect for vertices and edges, and for RDF, there are like four different formats we support, Turtle, RDF, XML, and whatnot. So you'd, you'd have to know that system. Uh, if you already know that, great. The, then, then the next problem is how do you create that mapping configuration? Okay, you can do that. Once you do that, next problem is how do you effectively move data? Now there's 
uh, questions around resiliency. There's questions around how do you handle security? Hey, what's the performance of the system? Uh, great. Even that happens. Now you have to handle your error scenarios. Like, okay, that happens and there's a failure. Now you have to troubleshoot all the way through the stack to figure out where things are going wrong. You would have, you can integrate with CloudWatch. Now, I'm not saying that's impossible. Yes, that, that's a way to do it. But you can offload all of that heavy lifting into this DMS workflow and saying, hey, DMS, can you do that for me? I know where my CloudWatch logs is. Um, I know my SQL queries. Get me the data into Neptune, and I can start building my application. That's the ease at which um, you, you have speed, you have reliability, and within a few clicks, you can get this going. Yeah, I think that's very interesting that you mentioned this kind of mapping step, because I think that what you're also alluding to here is that this is something that is not only bespoke, but the technique differs based on the volume of data that you have. Exactly, exactly. And and if you look at the mapping itself, right, um, W3C as a standard has a mapping definition. They, they call it the R to RML, essentially taking a RDF, the relational data, and they allow you to map it on RDF format. That's pretty standardized. But now, you would have to look at those standards, understand the format, and then build this mapping file. And for the Apache Tinkerprop Gremlin, unfortunately, we don't have one today. So that's where Neptune has defined a easy-to-use JSON format that, that does the similar mapping. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the last mile problem previously to be able to make migrate data into Neptune, right? DMS has, for all of the other sources and targets, been able to perform this, you know, like this durable transfer that's reliable and all of this, but that mapping has always been the hard part. It's always been extremely manual. I actually just recently worked on a project where I had to essentially break out pen and paper. And you know, if you wanted to do it yourself, you'd have to write your own script that would perform that conversion from how it's coming out of your transactional or your relational database um, and, and actually put that into your target destination. It, anytime there's something manual like that, it becomes a very error prone and all of the pitfalls that you just mentioned. I mean, beyond that, you know, with Neptune, we support Sparkle for query language, but Gremlin CSVs, as well as RDF uh, data interchange format. And so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, but I, I think I probably already know the answer. This is going to support both data formats so that customers can figure out which one works best for them. Yeah, it does. So depending on the configuration file you specify, the, the system would understand like, hey, what's your destination format? And and the real benefit is Neptune supports both, right? It's not one versus the other. You could choose to say, hey, you know what? I have both the files. I want the data in both the formats. And we, we, ha we do have customers who use both those data models, like the RDF and the Apache Tinkerbell property graph model in their organization today. So that's that's a real benefit. You don't have to muck around with just the format changes and the model selection. It will be done for you. So I, I have a question that I understand that DMS is, is more than just this. I mean, DMS is, as a service has been around for a while, and it, it facilitates many different kinds of database migration services, not just relational to graph. And I know this is the thing we're talking about right now, but it occurs to me that one of the other features that DMS uh, uh, provides, or at least it provides blueprints for, or operating modes for, is that you can do, let's say, on-prem to cloud migration. You know, so if you have an on-prem relational database and you want to migrate it to a cloud-based database, uh, whether that a cloud-based graph database or a relational database, that's something that DMS can also facilitate. And not only that, DMS can also help you do so in a way that provides minimal downtime, right? So can you talk a little bit about that and how it relates to the features we're, we're discussing here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that is an interesting use case, right? So the way we look at the migration from relational to graph is uh, you can 
you can use all of the relational data sources that DMS supports today, including ones coming from on-prem, and say that, hey, now as a destination, you use Neptune and have that migration go through. So it can be a cloud database, it can be an on-prem database, you can get the migration going. And and there's no notion of uh, the reliability that I talked about when you do a custom application that's sort of um, minimized because we use S3 as our staging data store. So you, you can have data in the intermediate format and then load that data into Neptune. I feel like we've talked through all of the pain points and ways customers have done this. So I could surmise sort of a workflow that's going to work here. I mean, I've used DMS for other use cases before, but correct me if I'm wrong. This is my hypothesis, right? So you've got your source database, uh, DMS, you, you list in a configuration to identify that and identify the target. DMS handles the ugly heavy lifting in the middle to make sure that that actual migration works. And then you should expect your data out on the other side in, in the Neptune database. Is that sort of yeah. the experience we're expecting here? Absolutely. So people who've already used DMS would just find right at home, right? It's 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 not a very different experience that I come up with. It's the same workflow, but the additional configuration we have is the graph ma- mapping configuration to say, hey, what do you need? Is it an RDF or a property graph? And the rest of the workflow is very similar. You use the same CloudWatch metrics. You use the rest of it should already be familiar to a DMS user. Yeah, and, and again, I I do think that like that that painstaking manual work and even just the having to learn how to perform that mapping change is one of the biggest roadblocks. Like even once people have identified or customers have identified that they they have graph problems at their organization and that do, using existing relational databases don't make that an efficient sort of experience for their developers. Uh, this is sort of in my eyes, the last mile problem there and, and DMS doing more than just the heavy lifting around the infrastructure, like actually helping make that easier to perform that migration is something that I'm really excited to see. Cool. Well, so I really want to see a demo of this. I don't know about you, Nick. Yeah, yeah, I want to see it. I, I don't want to hype it up too much, but it's like the first time I saw DMS in action, I was like blown away. I was just like, wow, this like really, really, really is like, you know, turnkey. You put your, your config in and it just goes. And like all of the manual steps you'd have to do otherwise are a lot. And the fact that this is now going to, yeah, you know, as per the launch, like, migrate our data from relational to graph is huge. So I'm ready to see it. I'm ready to be blown away yet again. But, uh, you know, I'll let everyone decide that for themselves. <laughs> cool. Let's jump right into it. So just just a quick recap, right? Like Neptune is purpose-built for graph. It's, it's a graph purpose-built graph database for connected data. And when you're looking at the sort of applications that, that really take benefit of, you know, the whole movement of relational data to graph, you, we listed a few, like, the, the knowledge graphs we talked about, we talked about the fraud graphs and the identity graphs, but there are also many more. Like you could have your IoT device data, right? The device connections could be in a, in a relational model, and that's a perfect use case for moving from a relational to a graph database. It, it could come from the on-prem as well, and we've seen many of our customers actually asking for that, saying, hey, is there an easy way for me to model in, in a graph application? Um, so we're taking an example here, right? So th- this is a popular example on the relational side where you have you know customers who, who can order and the order can span one or more products and you you have a mapping table sort of that one is to n mapping table which is an order product map table and um, this this is a subset view by the way like you can have more tables around shippers inventories uh, shipping addresses and whatnot I've, I've simplified the model to to give a flavor of the kind of um, migrations customer can customers can do today I've also added in a bunch of fields 
to say that, hey, there's a foreign key, primary key relationship. So if I were to query for, hey, what are the products ordered by a customer or how many orders came in on a given day or what is the most popular product, it's, it's you know, you're, you're essentially joining a bunch of tables to get the output. Now, with that said, that's a relational view. This is, in fact, an ER diagram, right? So that if it's a relational view of what's happening in the system. If I were to take a pen and paper or just go to the whiteboard and saying, hey, let's see how this should be modeled. The first thing that I would do is something like this, right? Um, here I've shown like three circles and that's, that's, that's your mental model. You're going to say there's a customer who can, who can create new orders and the orders are for products. That's essentially how we think about the problem. And what you're doing right now is, is a graph model. This essentially captures the essence of, hey, I want to get to this model from what I have with my relational tables. And like we discussed, W3C has the R2 RML config that, that can help in the, in, the, in the migration. And for the property graphs, we have a JSON file that helps you do this. You can essentially pick what properties that you want for these, what we call as vertices, the, the ones in circle. And you can also choose to say, hey, what properties go into these edges? This is the orange lines that are connecting those circles. And it's all about what... Uh, vertices and edges, right? So put together, that's your graph data model, and you can start modeling your graph in, in the way that you want. And before we go into the demo, just wanted to bring up the um, slide on what the process looks like, right? It's, it's, it's sort of a busy slide, but essentially what you have is on your left-hand side, you have a bunch of different data sources. I'm going to pick MySQL in this example, and you configure your source endpoint. This is Again, familiar to DMS users. Once you configure a source endpoint, the next thing you do is configure your destination. In our case, this, this happens to be Neptune. And you also specify what's your staging bucket, right? You give, give path to an S3 bucket. And along with that is the IAM permissions on, hey, what permissions can you access it? How can you assume the role and whatnot? And the table mapping is something that DMS already does for the existing data sources today. And the fourth final step is to use a graph mapping file, the, the two different formats we talked about, to do the migration. You can use CloudWatch logs, highly recommended. In many of the uh, tests and walkthroughs that I've done, having CloudWatch logs really makes, makes, makes a lot of sense. You can troubleshoot where in the workflow uh, you are, uh, what's the error if, if, if something happens, and sort of troubleshoot it. That's, that's at a high level. And Essentially, you can, um, because many of these are also exposed as APIs, you, you can choose to automate this whole workflow and do a one-time migration once your source database is ready. I think real quick before we flip over into the demo, I just wanted to get uh, two questions from chat out of the way. Uh, what is the scenario that Neptune is not recommended for? Uh, from somebody asking on LinkedIn. And let me add a little bit of context to that. I think what the direction that they're going for is when you perform a migration, like what we're talking about here, from a relational database to a graph database, you mentioned a lot of the benefits that you get or the trade-offs. Or in other words, like if you're, if you're really used to working in the relational world, what are you leaving behind when you now operate in a graph-based world? Yeah. So that, that's a great question, right? Um, when you look at the purpose-built approach, right? Each data store is, is is handling a particular use case and a particular data model. In the case of Neptune, it's all about relationships, right? You, you, 
while it's purpose built for relationships i i wouldn't look at putting a transactional data or you know something that you want a rapid access like a key value store in which case you could use a dynamo or if it's a json you could use a document db so those are use cases where you you wouldn't want to use neptune in which case you have other data stores that 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 are better applicable for handling that use case i'll also throw my hat in the ring here and say that oftentimes a migration of data to Neptune is not to replace your relational database. Like a lot of data that exists for this purpose or is going to be used for a different purpose, uh, like Neptune is powering essentially a, a different sort of downstream system, right? So it's like if for one given set of data, you have two very different access patterns, one of which is to understand relationships and to have, you know, like build personalization systems, examples we've named before, then Neptune will be the best for that in terms of not only developer experience, but performance of those queries. Now, you likely still have other needs for that data where a graph model doesn't offer you any benefits. And in fact, for things like full table scans and stuff will just be unnecessarily, you know, like painful. So the idea is not always, especially in graph use cases, from what I've seen, it's not always replacing your previous data set, but, uh, or your previous database, but having this to augment and serve the purpose that that particular team is going to need or those applications will need. You know, when we think about the right tool for the right job, it's not just what is the shape of my data, but how we're accessing it. And I think that we'll maybe we'll see that in some of the in maybe uh, uh, later. But like graph queries are essentially one of the biggest optimization paths, and that takes the form of developer experience. If you compare a graph query with something like uh, Gremlin to uh, the, the the really ugly join and Venn diagram. Of of like it's like the meme of like the guy on the wall with all the 500 different like pins and stuff behind him uh it's just really tough to to manage so it's it's i will say it's not always one or the other sometimes the answer is both yep absolutely and we do have customers who use the best of breed right for their use cases it's, it's um there are cases where if you're building a, um, a recommendation system or a knowledge graph you could use a graph but there are other cases where you may want to do that in conjunction with like a transactional store like like the fraud detection use case you know i would i would certainly think of customers who are using a relational data store with a graph data source to get the best of their use cases but just to make sure i understand you correctly karthik you're not saying that we can't start with a graph database we don't have to start with a relational database. let's say i'm building a, a just a, a dumb website right I've, I've got some users i've got registration i've got you know some authentication rules that it's, it's not the case that you can't use a graph database for that Right. I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is the superpower of the graph database m- might not be employed in that case, but there's no problem with building on top of the graph database as a, fa- as a foundation. Correct. Correct. In, in fact, we, we just published a set of use cases, right, you know, around COVID-19 knowledge graphs and um, a comment feature and news articles by, by, by one of the news service companies in Japan. So all of these are hierarchies that you, that you want to navigate. And in which case, like, it makes sense. You can just directly start off with Neptune and you, you, you don't need other stores. But there are other use cases like the transactional use case or if you're, if you're using JSON documents with your graph relationships, it makes sense to have two, two or more databases working for your application. Awesome. Yeah, sorry, sorry to hold you up on the explanation here. Yeah, and as we talked about before, you mentioned in here, like all of that work that DMS does is between steps, uh, between the two big blue um, 
uh, nodes here on this. Uh, I shouldn't say nodes because those have actual terminology, uh, actual applications and graphs. But uh, these two big blocks on here, all of the intermediary infrastructure and the actual transferring of the data happens between those and DMS handles that automatically. Exactly. Um, let me switch to my demo. So what we have here is um, the database model, right? I just essentially just wrote a SQL script for the the, the uh, schema model that I talked about earlier. There's customers, orders, there's products, a bunch of foreign keys and primary keys between them, and I have the corresponding constraints between the tables. And also added a bunch of sample data sets. Granted, these are like really smaller in number, but it illustrates the point. I could do it for five rows. I could do it for a billion rows, right? It's, it's, it's a matter of scale, and those should definitely work out. You can hear sample users, bunch of Amazon products being purchased by those users, and I have a mapping table, right? Now, just a high-level overview, you can notice that I have five customers five different products and the mapping file turns out to be, you know, there are like eight mappings, right? So one, one user might have purchased two, another three, another one and whatnot. And, and to throw in some complexity into the mix, I also created a view. It's, it's no different from a table, but it's a named query. So I, I have a join. So um, I can actually have a view, a data from a view also migrated into my graph application. Really simple. I'm going to go back to my, um, application here just going to log into the console so what i have here is my relational data source i'll let it load for a minute the relational data source what i did was i i it's i created a jupyter notebook that's in the same vpc so let me just pull that up it's the rdbms1 it's my mysql data store um you know it could be any version but i guess i'm running 5.7.22 now in the jupyter notebook what I have done in my setup is I also have my DMS integration that's running DMS 3.3.2. That's where the uh, support for Neptune kicked in. And I also have my S3 bucket. I've created a, a bucket with, with a folder, which, which I'll use in my configuration. And as part of my Neptune setup, I also created what's called a notebook. A notebook is essentially um, a Jupyter um, um, notebook that can connect your uh, Neptune database. So you don't have to you know, create another EC2 instance and start uh, connecting to your system. It's, it's just available. Uh, once you launch your notebook, you, sh you should, uh, in this case, I'm using the same notebook to connect both to my graph database and my relation application. That simplifies a lot because now I have all of them running in the same VPC. I don't need to you know, create separate instances and workbooks to, to, to uh, switch between the two views. Let me just reload my terminal. Launch my notebook. Again, to recap while you're clicking through uh, all of these menus, uh, we're walking through what it looks like to get DMS configured to be able to perform this migration from data from the earlier script that Karthik showed us that will create a relational database, throw a bunch of example rows into it. And he even had another, you know, more comp, more, more wild card, which was a, uh, a different table view. Um, and so what we're doing right now is where we're entering the, or getting into the managed Jupyter notebook. Again, you don't have to spin up an EC2 instance, just get into this interactive environment. And we can actually not only query data interactively from either our Neptune instance or from the, uh, the relational database, but we're going to be able to see actually using DMS to migrate that relational data into Neptune. 
Yeah, so I have my shell. I just created a terminal in the same Jupyter instance. I have the MySQL client loaded in that. What I'm going to do is I'm, I will grab the connection to my RDS instance. Let me go to the properties, and I should see the URL connection endpoint. So I'll grab the URL and go back to my terminal. And then I can give my login credentials here. And it'll just ask me for a password, the one that I supplied when my uh, database was created. And it should log me in. And so for folks that already have their data in a relational format, this is sort of going to be their entry point, right? They're going to have their existing database. They can access it. It's, maybe it's powering some production systems. This is where they would then start using DMS to perform this migration. Exactly. From from this point on, it's fairly straightforward. Like a SQL developer would know that, hey, these are my default databases with MySQL. And in my case, the database that I showed earlier that has already been loaded up. So I'm going to use the demo database. And let me also uh, show the tables. So I have the customer product tables created with the data that I showed earlier. And let me also have the products. Um, some of these are really intuitive, right? A person who can re, uh, can can understand, hey, you know what, this this makes sense. But once I start looking into the mapping file, uh, let's say I give my orders product, it begins to get trickier, right? Like, hey, what are these numbers, right? And that's where you're now dealing with the, the mapping configuration that comes with a relational data source. So that's my source data. That's great. Now I'm also going to switch to my Neptune instance, and I'm, I'm using the same Jupyter instance, but it's connected to my um, Neptune. So if you can click on Neptune, you can see that it's it's the DMS host one. Just to make sure here I have that in the database list. That's, that's the place that I'm going to store the Gremlin and the Sparkle data set. And it, it's just one database, right? I can use it for both the systems. So I'm going to go to my Gremlin view and the way I do that is I have a bunch of magic commands that we've added to the Jupyter Notebook. You can use that for both Gremlin and Sparkle. Uh, first, let me run a status to see that, uh, to make sure that the service is running. And then you can start issuing your uh, Gremlin and the Sparkle queries to that data set. Now, this data store is empty. I happened to clear it just before the demo. So while we know that, hey, the g.v is more of, hey, show me all the vertices, right? So that's that, that can be empty. Let's go ahead and kick off the migration flow so we can come back to this and see hey if if the data data actually loaded into the system let me make sure i close this 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 the star indicates that it's still running so i'm hoping that the iam credentials kicked in so while we do that let me go to my dms workflow so in my dms workflow the way i would start it is create my source and destination endpoints, right? Um, in this case, my source endpoint is my relational store. If I were to say, hey, choose RDS, and I have my RDBMS store, and it's going to fill in the defaults for me. It's, it's more of a convenience where it's going to say, it's, it's your MySQL instance, this is your server port, and then the username password that I gave earlier. So I'm going to key that in so DMS can connect to my relational store. Um, I don't really have to tweak the endpoint settings or the KMS key. I'll just leave it at defaults, but 
because you, you you've you can modify those configurations and i can run a test if i have a replication instance i skip that step as well since it's optional and then i can click on create i i need to give a unique name i think it's yeah it's, it says that the name that i used previously in my demo so let's say this is a live demo and then i can click on create Notice that I have a new endpoint for my source database. In a similar fashion, I need to create one for my destination. I'm going to click on that. This time, let me choose a target endpoint. I need to give the uh, unique label. So let me say Neptune Live Demo. That's my target endpoint. The engine here is going to be Neptune, right? So this this wasn't there prior to the DMS 3.3.2, but now I can choose that, and that gives me a set of options, right? The first one is, is straightforward, right? I need to key in the server name. So I can go back to the my Neptune view. I can look at the properties of my database, and I get my cluster endpoint. I'm going to copy that. Um, you can give your cluster endpoint, or you can give your um, the endpoint information of your writer instance. That should work as well. Let me go back to the DMS view and paste that right there. Right. The default port for um, Neptune is 8182, similar to like a 3306 for the RDS instance. In this case, I can choose IAM authentication if my database has that. In in my configuration, I don't have IAM, so I'm just going to leave it at don't enable. And there are two interesting settings, right? So I'll, I'll spend a minute or two on, on both these. Now, you, you need a service access role on, right? So what this is doing is... The DMS instance now needs to access your S3 bucket in order to push the data into S3. And Neptune also needs access to that bucket so it can pull data from it as part of the load and it can write data into it. So to do that, you need a service on. And I, I have this on created, right? So all I've done is I've just given it some permissions to access S3 bucket. Um, you, you can give read-only access, and there's a list and get put that you need to give. You don't need to give full access. And from a trust relationship, I have allowed both DMS and the Neptune principal prefix to assume role here, right? So that's what I've done. I've said that, hey, both Neptune and DMS can assume the role and, and then access that S3 bucket once the connection is made. Now, the DMS part is clear, right? You specified it and you're specifying the on in the configuration. How Neptune works is you can, let me go back to Neptune. And for this database, if I were to look at the action, there's, there's a way I specify the manage IAM roles. And for this database, notice that I have given the same role that Neptune can assume. So the Neptune can also access um, the same bucket that DMS is writing into. So all I have to do is copy the on. Um, I have that here, so I don't... Let me go back to the migration flow and then let me paste the on. So that gives permissions to access the bucket. Now, the second step is to say, hey, where that bucket actually resides, right? So that's that's the S3 bucket that I talked about. It's um, There's a bucket and then there's a folder. Uh, and I'm going to use the uh, S3 style format just to specify for my migration. And I can plug that in. Again, I have the same options to test my endpoint. I can specify some settings um, or I can use tags. But I, I can choose to skip all of those. And then I can create my destination endpoint. Yeah, it's fairly quick. I have two here and uh, two from a previous uh, dry run that, that I had created.
So that's that's sort of your endpoint basics, right? Like if you remember the picture, it's sort of the step one and two right there. I also need a replication instance, sort of the the middle blue box that you saw in the diagram that actually does the movement. Um, and then as part of the creation, uh, you can specify, here's my replication instance, and you can provide it a description. Uh, you can choose uh, instance class. Um, that's, that's more of a, uh, it's, it has both performance and cost implications. Generally for demos, I, I just choose the smallest instance type. Engine version has to be the latest, the 3.3.2 that I talked about. And again, you can use the default allocated storage. And you, you also have to choose the VPC in which you have created. And multi-AZ, you, you don't need to make it publicly accessible. And then you, you can choose to uh, configure some of the finer details around security. I would just choose the defaults because that's the one that my um, Neptune instance and my RDS instance were configured on. No changes to the KMS, and I can create my replication instance. Karthik, I had a, I actually had a question while I was thinking about that. So uh, when we think about the cost of a service like DMS, um, we think about some of the constituent components here, like S3 to store the, the data as an intermediary. We have the instance that's actually going to perform the, the, the transfer itself that we just saw. You know, how does this factor into the price of performing a migration like this? Yeah. So there are a few dimensions that... Um, Customers need to be aware of uh, with respect to pricing. One is the existing DMS costs, right? Uh, you, you get charged for the instance type that you're choosing. There's also charges for, let's say, if you enable CloudWatch logs with this, that there's a free charge for that. I talked about S3 because it's a staging area. There will be charges related to storage. And, of course, finally, Neptune. Uh, that's where you're writing data into. So that those are the charges. In terms of performance, generally, I would go by the data set because you're writing. It's a two-step process, right? You're writing data from your relational uh, using DMS into this S3 bucket. So you want to optimize on that. And the second performance consideration is loading data into Neptune, right? So there, generally, I would prefer an um, uh, instance with more memory because you're loading the data. In. And if it's a format like Gremlin, uh, the, the property graph model we validate for whether uh, whether an edge has a source and a destination vertices. So having memory to, uh, to do that computation definitely helps, and it can speed up your process to load the data set. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, so essentially, you know, depending on, obviously the answer is it depends, like many things, but but ultimately, depending on whether you want to prioritize a faster transfer, you can up, up to a scale up to a beefier instance, uh, or if, you know, you're more time insensitive, you could use one of these uh, less costly instances. Exactly, exactly. It's a cost performance trade-off, right? Yeah. Like look with many, you know, with databases and the migration, there are cost performance trade-offs to look into. Um, I'm, I'm going to leave it running. This takes a few minutes to, to spin up an instance and then have uh, DMS up and ready. Because I have another one that I created, it's, it's exactly the same type, and it's just in a different AZ. I'm going to use this instance for my migration. And the next step that I would have to do is the data migration task. Now you see a bunch of tasks that I did uh, from a dry run, but what essentially the task is allowing you to do is now use these elements to say, now, how can I move data from my source endpoint into my destination endpoint? So let's go ahead and create the task. The first thing that I do is I give it a name. So let's say live demo, and I'm going to say it's um, property graph, right? So, and then I can choose my replication instance. The source happens to be the live demo that I just created. Target, 
connects to the live demo Neptune instance that I created. Now notice once I choose Neptune, some of your mapping configurations below change, right? Um, I'll, I'll talk about those. Um, before that, I, I want to enable CloudWatch logs. That's my good way to know hey, what's happening under the hood. And the table mapping file is specifying what tables get selected. Now, this is standard DMS, but I just want to call out a few things. Let's go to the JSON editor view. This, this allows you to specify the rules on how you're going to pick up a table, right? Hey, is it based on a pattern? Is it a query? And sort of this. There's a lot of um, configuration that goes into the rule definition, right? Let me quickly switch screen, and I'm going to bring up a configuration file. That's my uh, rules. Let me plug that in, and I'll, I'll definitely talk about what's... So let me paste that in here. So what, what we're actually doing is I'm, I'm saying, hey, it's a selection. Uh, um, there is an ID and a name to it, and there's an object locator. Now, what the object locator is trying to do is pull in tables from where? Like from a database called Demo. That's where we started from. And this percentage is telling you that, hey, it's, it's, it's a wild card, right? Just pull in all the tables. Now, let's, let's remember that this database not only contains tables, but I also I created a view. So I need to include the view. So what I do is I add another JSON to say, hey, it's a selection. It's a new rule. In the same database, include all the types which are views. And I just give a wildcard pattern here as well. I could have been more specific to say which view, but for simplicity, it's, it's just all the views in the table that get concluded. That's my source data set now with, with all of the um, tables and views that are coming in. Now I need to know what's my graph mapping file, right? So this is where the decision gets made. Like, do you want to write to a RDF model or do you want to write it into a property graph model? And I, I can show both, uh, but let's start with the property graph, uh, which uses a Gremlin query language, right? Now, that's a JSON format, right? So let's, um, I have one created. I'm going to quickly talk through those. What it essentially does is it allows you to specify rules, just like your table mapping file, but in terms of what are your vertices and what are your edges, right? So when I give my vert vertex definition, I'm, I'm going to say what is the table in from which I'm pulling in the data from for that vertex. Now, let's go back to what our goal is, right? So we're, we're trying to build this one. So I need a vertex for customers, one for orders, and one for products, right? So I'm going to say, okay, pull in data from customers, and I'm going to create a customer vertex. Now that's good, but what are its properties? I start pulling in properties from my table, but because these are templatized, I'm going to say, pull in from what is called a name column, pull in from a phone column, and pull in from a city column. So those are just my columns of my customers table. Similarly, I'm going to say you create a, a order vertex, but then pull in from the product orders, which is essentially a, a, a view. But now in this case, now start pulling in properties of that view. Like for example, here I can pull in an order date and uh, it, it's a date time. I can give a date time property or I can choose it as a string. Here, that depends on how you're planning to query the data on the graph side. I can also choose the order quantity as a property of that vertex. So that's my second vertex. And my third vertex is, is, is very similar, right? Now I'm going to query my products table. I know what my ID is, uh, and I just specify two properties, which is the name and description coming from the property table. And these are the columns of that relational store. We now have those three vertices, and now you to just connect a customer to, to order, and you, you need to connect the order to the product, just the two edges. 
The first one is connecting the customer to the orders, right? So I have my view again, and I'm just pulling fields off my view, and I can say what my from vertex and my to vertex are. These are the ones that I defined earlier in my view. And then I can also specify, hey, what 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 is going to be the labels that you assign to your edges? It's going to be a purchase label, and you can give you know a, a template on how that that label would be attributed. And you can also specify edge properties here. In this example here, I I've taken date as my actual uh, data data type with with my order date. Yeah, and to and to just give another sort of, I, I know this can seem like a lot uh, to people, especially if they haven't used Graph before. Um, to sort of draw as much familiarity as possible here, like these nodes that you're describing are essentially each of the like they're not dissimilar to key value items in maybe like a DynamoDB table or, or any other key value data data set that you want. But the unique part about graphs is what you just described there being as the edges, right? The fact that graph databases can actually relate items to one another as sort of a first-class citizen as opposed to some sort of like shoehorned, really ugly data structure is sort of where data or graph databases come into their own. And so this mapping step is a little involved, but this is what enables all of the downstream benefits of graph databases. Exactly, right? Um, now, now that you notice that I don't need an intermediate order mapping table that, you know, that does that one is to N, or I don't need to you know, start using a view. All of those become first-class citizens. The fact that I'm using the view and then start uh, using those properties to create my edge simplifies the whole deal. Once I have my graph, you know, I don't need to create these joins. I can start querying those as first-class properties right away. So, Karthik, one one thing that I'm wondering as you're showing us this this uh, mapping JSON file here is, are there extensions or tools that can help us edit this file? Because I'm thinking, you know, here you have, for example, edge ID template. Yeah. Yeah. And the template consists of three references, which I assume are going to be interpolated. The values are going to be interpolated in, right? But, you know, I make a lot of typos as I'm writing code. So if I misspell order underscore ID, what what tools can I use to kind of avoid that kind of uh, yeah. Uh, mistake? Yeah. So what we're doing is uh, we are publishing a blog post with a utility. It's a Python utility that sort of looks at your source databases and it generates this configuration for you. That that should be coming out pretty soon. That should take away the pain of just saying, hey, is this customer ID with, with an underscore or a hyphen, right? That, that could be one. For me, what I generally do is I, I use a good editor that also looks at my previous iterations and it sort of gives me a quick autocomplete. So I kind of um, avoid those uh, errors. Cool. Um, and what I have done is exactly defined another uh, edge between the order vertex and my product, and then, then used um, a quantity, and then that's an integer. So I've just given different flavors of data types that can go in. So that's that's my configuration file. So I can go back to the graph mapping, and instead of just writing it in the text editor, I can say, hey, let's upload this configuration, right? It happens to be this graph mapping order sample. And once that's done, all I have to do is just create the task saying, just create that copy process. And as by default, we have a checkbox that says, as you create this task, also start the task and do the migration. I can choose to do that as a two-step process, but um, it's straightforward to do the migration. Now, while this is loading, let me also go ahead and create another task for, tasks for my uh, RDF mapping. I'm going to uh, follow a similar process. It's um, live demo, and in this case, it's a uh, RDF, and I'm going to use the same replication instance. 
I can choose my source endpoint, my destination endpoint. Um, I would love to enable CloudWatch logs. And the JSON table, it's going to be exactly the same. I, I'm going to look at the um, same table mapping because I'm, I'm migrating the data in a different format. Plug that in. And in the graph mapping case, now instead of a JSON mapping, I'm going to upload an R to RML mapping. Now, earlier that I mentioned that R to RML is a standard, it's it has a specification to, to migrate from relational data source to RDF mapping. It's it's fairly straightforward. I'm going to bring that up. So it, it's in this case, I've kept it really simple. It, uh, you go by a triples map, and in triple map, you select a logical table, and you give, because it's based on a triple with um, subject predicate object, here your subject mapping is to a customer and the predicates are you know like the customer id and, and then the, the actual value and similarly i have one for the name right so I, I can do that for my products as well so it's fairly you can write that r to rml mapping and again like the utility that i mentioned should simplify in generating a template for you so i'm going to upload my r to rml mapping and now this is going to create RDF migration for me. Okay, while this is doing, uh, notice that the live property graph, that load completed. So my property graph is ready on my Neptune side. If I were to quickly see the table stats, it's going to tell me what it did, right? So it um, is an order product, all of the tables that I created, and there's also this product orders, which happens to be a view that, that was added to the mix. And from the mapping files, the graph mapping file took all of what I had called out and it had no errors which is good and it was fairly quick because it, it was just a small very small sample data set and I, I could i could actually go into cloudwatch logs and see like hey um was there any error should it should I, or like where in the process um is is the current uh, migration right and but before we switch to the actual graph database i'll also go to the S3 instance, and uh, um, these are the temporary folders that it creates. Well, once the uh, migration completes successfully, these should be cleaned up for you, so you don't incur any charges for like storage that's never never going to be touched again, right? So that um, the system does that cleanup for you. So now this the graph property graph is done. So. The RDF is running. So what I'm going to do is quickly go back to the workbench where we started and we said, hey, there are no other uh, um, nodes. And let me refresh the screen just to make sure that there's no um, stale connections or something here. Okay. So I'm going to close this and this. Now I'm going to open my Gremlin notebook. This is this is a template that that we created earlier, right? So it has the connections. Let me quickly run, run the status. Okay, there you can see that the status it says it's healthy. But now, if I run my magic command for Gremlin with a g dot v, it's going to show me all of the vertices that I created. It's eighteen because there were five from the orders, five from the customers, and there were the mapping relationships had the additional eight. So it was five plus five plus eight. So the, those were your eighteen. And you could actually go into some more details, like you can write a g dot v dot value map and you should be able to see the exact data set that you started with. The the five users, the the five products and sort of the order mapping table. Um, you could also look at the edges by just map, mapping into g.e. I, I wouldn't recommend a value map as a, as a way to uh, check the data. You typically would do a count or you would actually do a query because some of these can expense, can be expensive depending on the size of your data set. 
what you could do is something like this. This is more valuable, right? You can navigate a relationship from the customer and see how you can reach the product. Like, hey, that's sort of your first step in if you want to build a recommendation system. Now, if I run this, it's going to tell me who is the customer, what is the path you need to take in order to reach the product. So this is your diagram that that we looked at earlier. Customers going all the way to order, that's your path that you're tracing. And it happens to be exactly eight of those. So that that tells me now that my relational data is in into my Gremlin, the, the property graph model, and, and then it's, it has been validated. Um, before we wrap the demo, let's go back to DMS. And looks like the RDF has completed as well. So that's good. So let me go back to my notebook and open my RDF notebook. It's really, you could use the same notebook, but just for separation, I, I, I tend to keep this separately because it's a different magic command. I'm going to issue a select star just because my data set is really small. And notice that your select star is actually going to give you the RDF data set. You can see that it's products, it, it has a code, and then uh, you know some of the Amazon products come in here, and there are also users that, that you can look at. And then um, we did not load the relationships. These are just pure, purely the vertices and their properties that are loaded in the system. But edges would be similar uh, if you were loaded using r 2 RML mapping. So that that was a quick demo. So one thing that I have seen is, um, of course, the mapping is is something that uh, customers would would have to get it right. The other one uh, to keep in mind is the IAM roles because um, we talked about how you access the S3 bucket and how you have Neptune configured. Once those two are set, you, you can definitely do this migration in fairly quickly, and you know, for even billions of records. Wonderful. I've got a question and maybe a little bit of a curveball here, but I have used this little tool in the DMS wheelhouse before called the uh, SCT, the schema conversion tool. And it is like magic wand, right? Like you say, like, here's my my uh, my origin data source and, and, you know, the amount that are covered are not fixed to AWS databases. Like you can take like SQL Server, Oracle database, so like IBM DB2 database, like stuff that we don't even offer, right? You can... You point to that as the source, and obviously that's a closer sort of one-to-one -one mapping with other relational databases that you can move as tar as valid targets, right? So, is there any plan to try and implement for Neptune? And I know that's very difficult because there's not always these direct one-to-one -one mappings. It's very opinionated. Is there any plan to have like Neptune in in uh, more in Neptune integration into SCT? Yeah, definitely. Those are the areas we are highly interested in, right? Like, how do you streamline the flow and make it much more easier than what it is? So this was like the first step that we took on, hey, here's relational, here's Neptune, now there's a way to migrate. So the next step is just integrate with tools such as SET, uh, have a, even a visual way to say, hey, is there a way that you can look at the graph and you can attribute your schema? So you, you're participating in that workflow and then doing the migration. Those are definitely things that we're, we are highly interested in. Yeah. And even uh, before any sort of SCT integration comes out for Neptune, this uh, this new launch now enables that sort of two-step migration from essentially the, the upstream pool of everything that SCT can support. So you can go from like an on-prem SAP or IBM database get into the cloud on RDS and then use DMS to go from that RDS database here to Neptune in like two quick steps. Quick, obviously, uh, subjective, but uh, I think that like it's very clear how in this like you know 20, 30 minutes of walking through this use case, like the alternative here is is far more involved of having to manage and provision and write your own scripts for this migration. And, and oftentimes, you know, I, I, these migrations are not something you're doing 
very often. And if you are, I don't know, I'd question some of the other processes uh, that are going on. And so, you know, avoiding that one-time cost with a launch like this is, uh, is, is, very, is very valuable to customers that are trying to get started with graph databases. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons when we started, right, we, we tend to work backwards from customers. Uh, customers were essentially doing that. And, and when we spoke about, hey, is this something that they would be interested in? And like a lot of eyes lit up, right? Like saying, hey, okay, can you help me do this problem? Uh, this is something that we would need yesterday, right? So that was sort of the feedback that we got. And we have simplified it a bit. And of course, we, we, we can do a lot more and definitely looking forward to feedback from customers. Uh, there, were a, there are a few that we are closely working with in actually enabling this migration across uh, different verticals. And we look forward to the feedback. Awesome. Well, uh, I don't really see any other particular questions in chat. If customers want to get started with this, uh, where can they go? Obviously, I know we, we walked through what that looks like, but I'm assuming they could just hop right into their uh, AWS console, spin up a Neptune cluster, and then head over to DMS and, and perform the same steps that we did today, right? Yeah, absolutely. This this went live uh, early last week, so this is available to all customers. They can they can try that out today. Starting points: we have a what's new post. We we have uh, both the Neptune documentation and the DMS documentation updated with, with with the steps. We also plan to publish the blog post that I called out. So it's a bunch of avenues uh, customers can get started today. That's wonderful. Yeah, this was a really comprehensive dive. I'm glad you took us into the you know, the detail to see how all this works under the covers, because I think that really kind of gives us a, a full picture of what's happening here. Awesome. Well, time again, this is today's the theme of today's episode. Time is a finite resource. And in the same way that customers valuing their time want to use something like DMS to get their data into Neptune, we have another launch coming up three for three today. And that is, uh, I'll get into that in a little bit. I'll give a little Hint, it's uh, machine learning oriented yet again, uh, using 3D point cloud data. But we'll get into that in just a moment. Karthik Barathi, Principal Product Manager from Neptune. Thank you again for showing this to us today. Thank you for having me, Rob and Nick. Yeah, Thank you. No problem. Thanks. Last demo of the day. I'm sorry we didn't have five for five for episode five. I know we've had one for every number of our episode, but... Quality over quantity. That's the motto on this show. We've got a lot of models on the show. Time is a finite resource. So on and yeah, so yeah. Forth. <laughs> I feel like I need a, a note on, on when, we, when we choose our mottos here, Nick. Come on. <laughs> All right. Well, regardless, down to brass tacks. We've got third launch. It's very exciting. And I know we've got a fun demo for it. Joining us is Jonathan Buck, a software development engineer from the team, uh, from SageMaker Ground Truth. But in particular, the launch of today is 3D point cloud support for SageMaker Ground Truth. We've got a lot to unpack. But first of all, John, thanks for joining us today on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Really great to be here with you guys. Awesome. So, John, it's, it's great to have you here. Like Nick said, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what you work on here and what we're going to be discussing. Sure thing. Well, I think Nick gave me a great introduction. My name is Jonathan. I'm a software development engineer on the SageMaker Ground Truth product. And uh, I guess just by way of, of uh, background here for folks who may not be familiar with the service, this is a service that we launched at reInvent in, in 2018. And the focus of the service is really all about uh, helping our customers build high quality data sets for machine learning applications. So my role on the team has been to work on a lot of the back-end functionality that, that we need to put this feature set in the hands of our customers. 
Yeah, and so and now as I understand it, this sorry, sorry, good. Go ahead. Nick. Yeah, I was just gonna say uh, for folks that maybe have done machine learning, they're extremely familiar with this with the struggle and the amount of work it takes to label data sets. Like if you ask a data scientist or an ML engineer what they spend most of their time doing, it's probably wrangling data reluctantly, of course, because none of us like doing that. Uh, and Ground Truth as a service is one that helps us to pr- helps developers produce that and distribute those tasks to workforces, whether those are you know internal, external, using Mechanical Turk, so on and so forth. So we're talking 3D point cloud data today. This is something that I feel like most, even folks in the ML space haven't dealt with, but it's, it's you know, there's a treasure trove of opportunities for use with this. So let's talk a little bit about 3D point cloud data. Where is this commonly used? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So, so when we talk about 3D point cloud data, typically we're talking about, I, I think that the biggest use case that we see is the autonomous vehicle domain. And so, in fact, you may have, have seen these uh, out on the streets, either near, near your home or, or near your offices. You know, these are the cars that you see that are out there with these sort of big, bulky-looking sensors mounted on top of them. Most often, those are, are LiDAR sensors. And, you know, the a whole technical deep dive on the wide array of LiDAR sen- sensors is probably beyond the scope of what we have to, to talk about today. But suffice it to say, you know, there's many different manufacturers, many different vendors, um, all kinds of caveats there. But, but ultimately, what, what these sensors do is they give you these data sets where you can actually capture sort of topographically 3D renderings that represent the, the, you know, the full 3D landscape that's captured by these LiDAR sensors. And um, so if you think about more, more traditional um, machine learning applications, such as you know, t- typical com- computer vision applications, you might have images, you might have bounding boxes or object detection. You know, most of those scenarios, you're, you're dealing with just, just flat 2D images. And those are workflows we've supported since, since the, the product launched at reInvent in, in 2018. And so I think we're, we're just really excited to, to put this new feature set in the hands of our customers. Um, this is a feature that just launched earlier this week. A lot of opportunity here for, for customers in the autonomous vehicle space who, who have these, these massive data sets and are just looking for a way to you know, make that part of their machine learning pipeline. And I think you, you made some good points earlier, Nick, about data, data wrangling, data labeling being sort of one of the often overlooked pieces of the machine learning pipeline. So I think this is, this is one of the, the insights that, that we had at AWS when we uh, launched the service in 2018. At, at that time, you know, we already had functionality for training models, for running batch inference, for, for hosted inference. Those, those were already part of the SageMaker portfolio. But if you sort of build a, a mental model of, of what is the machine learning pipeline, well, yeah, training, inference, hosting, those are all important pieces of it. But there is this, this very instrumental piece at the very front of it where you have, to, you have to collect that data and you have to annotate it and you have to sort of understand what it is and, and, and how to work with it before you can actually you know, proceed down, down the pipeline. Yeah. Can you give us a sense of what one of these data sets looks like? What, what exactly is the, is the data? Can you paint a clear picture for that? Yeah, I, I'd be glad to. And, and we'll see this in, in the demo later on. So, um, you know, I think folks out there who are, who are watching the live stream will, will get a really good graphical uh, illustration of it. But, but in a nutshell, the data set is essentially, you know, a, a three-dimensional representation of, of the points that have been captured by the LiDAR sensor. So literally, it's, you know, a set of XYZ coordinates potentially other things like the, the elevation or the intensity. Sometimes, d- depending on the sophistication of the LiDAR sensor, it can, it can also add in RGB values. So you get some indication of you know, the color of the object that was captured by the LiDAR sensor. So this goes back to the notion that there, there's a wide variety of, of LiDAR sensors out there. 
And um, we've we've tried to build this this new feature set in a way that you know can can support different data formats that might come from these sensors. So you know we're we're not locking customers into to one specific model of, of LiDAR sensor or one particular data format. We, we, we've tried to, to, to build in some of that flexibility so that depending on the nature of your data set, you, know, you, can, you can still bring your data to the service and use it in just the same way. Awesome. So you know, if a picture is, X, is, is RGB values in an XYY grid that get flattened into yep. you know, a one-dimensional array when we feed those into algorithms, 3D point cloud is sort mm-hmm. of XYZ and then multi-dimensional of its intensity, elevation, all those other things that you said. That's right. I, mm-hmm. I know it, it past one and even two dimensions, yeah. this becomes hard to understand and look at like a data structure and be like, oh, yeah, yes, that's uh, the starry mm-hmm. night, right? Like, it, that's right. not how humans think, but that's how the algorithms need to. Uh, that sort of begs the bigger mm-hmm. question, right? So if that's the raw data for a 3D point cloud, we have to talk about labeling for assigning these subjective labels to objects so that like this, mm-hmm. you know, this raw 3D point cloud, hey, this little area over here, that represents a car or that represents a person. I'm assuming this is where the labeling comes in. So could we talk a little bit about how that happens? And I know that, you know, that's the crux of this launch, but, um, you know, where does mm-hmm. the labeling occur there? That's right. So I think this is, this is really the, the, the key value proposition of, of uh, SageMaker Grand Truth as a service. You know, one of the things we, we like to do at AWS is take on the tasks of, of the undifferentiated heavy lifting to spare, to spare our customers from having to do that so that they can focus on the things that are actually really central to, to the value that they deliver to their customers. And so whether we're talking about 3D point cloud labeling or, or any of the other workflows that we support, the, the real value of, of uh, SageMaker Ground Truth is that it provides this sort of fully managed service that provides a lot of the essential pieces of, of any labeling annotation workflow. So it allows you to, to ingest data, to uh, define different task types, to create workforces, to manage those workforces, to, to distribute the annotation tasks to, to the members of those workforces, to receive those, those annotations back. There's a number of other levels of, of sophistication um, that, that come into play there. And so, so that's really what, what Ground Truth gives you as a, as a user of, of the service. So you bring your data to the platform, click some buttons, set up, set up these workflows, and then, you know, those tasks become available to, to your workforce. And, and they have, they have a separate interface that, that can be logged into. And that interface provides a lot of, you know, best practices, a lot of UX, UI, uh, um, magic that we've, we've brought to the table to help facilitate that. So I think a couple of other key key things to mention here with respect to 3D point cloud labeling are some of the assistive uh, capabilities that this this feature set provides, and uh, you know I think this is important because whenever you talk about data labeling and annotation, is you know there, there's sort of multiple parties involved. There's there's the, the the side of it where you're you're bringing the data to the the platform, you're creating the workflow, but at the end of the day, you know there are people who have to make sense of the data that you provided and figure out how how to draw the boxes. So, so three of the, the things that I want to highlight here are a feature that we have for uh, snapping or fitting a bounding box to an object. So if you imagine sort of a, an abstract 3D point cloud, ideally what you want is you want a, a three-dimensional box or a three-dimensional cube that maybe you know, fits exactly around a, a car or, or some other vehicle. And as you can imagine, that can be pretty, pretty tedious to do. So we have a feature that allows you to sort of draw a rough box click a button and it'll automatically sort of shrink wrap down to the, the height, width, and, and depth of, of, the, of the object. Another similar feature is uh, a ground detection feature. 
And so this is similar in the sense that, you know, ideally you want a very tight, nicely fitting bounding box around the object. And that can just be difficult to, to do in 3D space. So again, you can sort of draw a, a loose box around the object, hit this button, and it sort of uh, will, will sh- shrink the bottom of the box up to ground level. So you, know, you don't have to worry about being super, super meticulous uh, in a manual way with these things. You know, Get sort of rough context, size, and shape. And a lot of these assistive tools will, will help you out with that. And then the, the, the third thing that I want to highlight here is an interpolation capability. So when we talk about these 3D point cloud data sets, uh, one, of the, one of the workflows that we have in this feature is, is an object tracking workflow. And so what that entails is you, you have a, an ordered sequence of frames and you want to track vehicles, pedestrians, cyclists, whatever the case may be, across the sequence of frames. And, you know, as you can imagine, going from frame to frame to frame, repeatedly drawing the same boxes could get pretty tedious. And so this interpolation feature that we have allows you to sort of draw boxes at, at intervals. And you can choose the interval. You know, it depends on, on the, the, the resolution of the images and how much things are changing. So you sort of draw these, these key points or these key frames, and then the boxes will be interpolated in between. And then, you, you know, you can go back after the fact and adjust things or, or fine-tune things. But this, this feature is really just about, you know, helping make the annotation process as, as user-friendly as possible. Yeah, that, that last feature that you mentioned, it almost sounds like we're turning this thing into a, um, a piece of animation software mm-hmm. with uh, keyframes <laughs> and interpolation. And, but but, but yeah, at the same time, you know, you can't imagine hand drawing frames like that, you know, without these kinds of tools, without keyframes, without interpolation, without onion skinning. So I, I can't wait. Can we take a look at the demo? Yeah, I would love to share it with our customers. So let me share my screen here. So there are two parts to this demo. The first part is... I'm going to share a sample notebook. And, and this sample notebook has been published publicly. We had the launch blog earlier this week when this feature um, was, was officially announced. And so our, our customers um, who may be watching this live stream can, can um, look for that launch blog. They'll see a link to this notebook. And, and this notebook is easily accessible through the SageMaker's hosted notebook functionality. And so what, what I hope to do here is just sort of give, give folks a bearing and a, you know, a sense of orientation for what is this notebook all about? What is this feature all about? I hope by the time we get to the end of this, people who are watching have, have a better understanding of, of this service if they're not familiar with it previously. Or if they are familiar with the service, I hope people get a, a deeper understanding of what what they can do with this 3D point cloud labeling feature, You know uh, what the data contracts are, how to bring data to it, how to work with it, and, and how to understand the results. So that being said, there's a lot of uh, boilerplate here that I, I probably won't go into in the interest of time. And, and again, this notebook is publicly available. So, so for folks who are interested you know, this, this notebook is, is easily accessible and um, people can, can read through it at, at their leisure if they want to see some of the, the finer details. So with that introduction, I'll step through some of the, the key cells in this, in this notebook. And so again, there's, there's some boilerplate up here. One of the interesting things is down in one of these early cells, uh, we're actually going to copy a lot of assets from a public S3 bucket that, that AWS maintains and that it uses for some of our public blogs and, and launch announcements and things of that nature. So the reason this is this is useful to our customers is because, you know, this is a pretty sophisticated data set. We talked earlier about how you, you have sort of three-dimensional data, potentially n-dimensional data when, when we talk about incorporating the intensity or the RGB values. So it's helpful basically to have sample files that you can use as inputs just, just to get started. 
for some of our existing workflows, like like image classification, for instance, you could you could just you know go around your house and take pictures of your cat or your dog and 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 run those workflows. In fact, that's a fun project for a Saturday if anyone has has free time. But this does take a little bit more setup because of uh, you know the, the sophistication of, of the data set. So what I want to talk about here is this distinction between some of the, the, the workflows within this 3D point cloud annotation feature. We actually have, have, uh, have, have three separate sorts of workflows there. We have, we have a single frame object detection workflow. Um, so this is sort of like a, a, a snapshot taken by the LiDAR camera. And maybe you have just an, an unordered collection of these things. Maybe just you know, in, a, in a grab bag. There's not necessarily any temporal coherence to them. That's one of the workflows. The other workflow is this object tracking workflow that we talked about. And then the third workflow is a single frame 3D point cloud semantic segmentation workflow. Now that's that's a mouthful and, and we'll see we'll see an example of that later on. But but essentially it's it's these 3D point cloud data sets. But instead of, of drawing boxes or cubes around the objects, what we actually want to do is, is sort of take a virtual paintbrush and and paint the 3D pixels associated with the scene. And and the idea there is to, is to assign each pixel to a particular class, whether it's a, a vehicle or a pedestrian or the road or the background, which is sort of a more extensive form of annotation than the object detection or the object tracking workflow where we're just uh, drawing those cuboids. And so uh, what I want to show here is just, just to give people a sense for what these data contracts are. And, and I won't dive too deep into this because this is, this is pretty dense. There's a lot of numbers here. I think people are going to want to see the, the visuals more than um, data contracts. But, but I do want to illustrate that for the single frame workflows, the, the data contract is such that uh, you, you provide a pointer to a particular S3 location where the point cloud data set resides. So in this case, we have a point cloud data set that's called zero.txt, not, not the most original name, but, but that's the point cloud data. And then we also have some metadata. And the reason this metadata is important is because uh, if you think about how these 3D point cloud data sets are, are captured, they're, they're captured by, by vehicles moving through space, and these vehicles have, have sensors mounted on top of them. And so there's a term in this, in this industry that we call the ego vehicle. So that's just borrowing the word ego from, from Latin, which means I or, or self. So this is just the, the position, the, the, the coordinates and the orientation of the vehicle that's actually capturing the, the data. And we'll see in the, the demo later on how that's actually useful. And so then we, we, we have some of that data down below. We also have an array of images associated with the data set. And so this is actually a really, really powerful piece of functionality that, that I want to highlight here because people may be asking themselves, wait, we're talking about 3D point cloud data. We're talking about LIDAR sensors. Where, where, do, where do images come in? And uh, the answer to that is with this 3D point cloud annotation tool, we have incorporated this, this functionality that we call sensor fusion. And, and what that is, sort of as the name suggests, is you can bring in multiple sensors, fuse them together into a common UI. And that's just such a powerful feature. And so what that means is, is when you're looking at uh, a 3D point cloud data set, you can sort of have, have optical images, you know, just, just typical JPEG images, for instance, that were taken at the same, same time and same place from the same vehicle. And that just gives you such a richer understanding of the scene. 
So we'll, we'll see that later on. What I want to illustrate here is, is that is a, a feature of this data contract. You can, you can specify the, those images that you might want to include for the purposes of sensor fusion. Now, when we talk about the multi-frame workflows, which, which again is going to be that object tracking workflow, the, the format is, is a little bit different. Instead of defining that, that big JSON blob like we did up above, we're actually going to have sort of a, a series of nested JSON files, if you will. And so, so here's, here's our top level input. And then sort of under the hood, if we were to open this JSON file, then what we see is, is basically an array of the objects that we saw previously. And, and I think this makes sense, right? Because, because inherently, this is, this is a multi-frame workflow. We have an ordered sequence of inputs. And so, you know, how, how do we capture that, that ordered sequence? We, we construct an array of, of the inputs. So that, that's all that's happening here. And this particular example is an array of, of 10 frames. And so you'll see frame number one, frame number two, and, and so on and so forth. So I'm just going to scroll down past this, this big array of 10. While you're scrolling through this, I think it's like... Uh... Good call that like traditionally short of like having a visual inspector for data like mm -hmm. this, like we as humans ingest visual data in a visual fashion, right? Like we think about mm -hmm. bounding boxes and, and areas and all of this. Like once you once you boil that down into much like all colors in RGB, like we don't think about bounding boxes and especially not 3D mm -hmm. meshes in um in numeric form, right? Even if those are how they're represented to computers. So mm -hmm. it's like this launch to me is very exciting, not only because it makes this faster, but it's like in many ways, it would be near impossible without tools like the snapping feature here, like without this mm -hmm. visual snap to grid essential uh, feature mm -hmm. here to, to even perform these labeling, this labeling to, to, to do these autonomous driving sort of uh, mm -hmm. use cases. Yeah, but I, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and hopefully that's, that's the value that people, other people see in it too. So if we, if we continue down this notebook, again, there's a lot of boilerplate. You'll, you'll see certain mappings because again, we have, we have multiple workflows. So, you know, for one workflow, you need, you need one configuration for, for another workflow, you need another configuration. That's essentially all that's happening here. And, uh, so the, the great thing about this notebook is it actually walks you all the way to the process of, of creating one of these workflows. And so I did that earlier in the show while I was waiting in the wings, so to speak, just so that I'd have something handy. So at this point, I'll, I'll jump to that uh, you know, sample annotation interface and, and people can really get a visual. And uh, I had this waiting in the background, so I just need to refresh the browser here. And so to be clear, this is once you've created your task, this mm -hmm. is the actual interface by which your labelers will experience this. So either predetermined workforce mm -hmm. from your company with a list of email addresses that you provide, maybe mm -hmm. Mechanical Turk, maybe a private labeling mm -hmm. agency through the marketplace. These are all viable output workforces to, to perform this labeling. Mm -hmm. Yep. You, you hit the nail on the head. We, we have a number of different workforce options that you can choose from as a Grand Truth user, depending on your needs, depending on your uh, degree of cost sensitivity. There's you know different trade-offs there to be sure, but we we do have those options available now. For this, for the for the sake of this example, and and what we do in the sample notebook is we we uh, have the notebook user just create a private work team that consists of, of basically themselves, and this is a, a nice thing to do when you're sort of you know in the iteration stage of setting this up. You know, you oftentimes you you want to create something, see see what it looks like. Like try it out, and then maybe go back, create a new one. So you, you you just get a really tight feedback loop when you set it up that way. 
So yeah, that, that being said, this is the annotation interface and there's just so much exciting goodness packed in here. I'm, I'm really glad to be able to share this with people. So let me, let me start just at a high level here and point out a couple of salient features of this. So, so the first thing is, um, if you see the, the green and the orange sort of X, Y axes here, this is sort of the, the origin of, of the coordinate system here. And, and you see this sort of black void in the middle with almost what look like ripples on a pond emanating out from it. This is, uh, to, to use that term again, the ego vehicle or the, the vehicle on which these sensors are, are mounted. And, and what you're seeing is, is the LiDAR data. So this is, this is just such a full-featured, rich interface. I can you know, sort of orient the view. I, I can zoom in. And if, if I zoom in here, then what you can start to make out, hopefully, are actually some, some interesting features here. So we see what looks like another vehicle in front of us. And in fact, we maybe see a second sort of to the left, just, just ahead of that first one. So this is a good segue to talk about the sensor fusion capabilities here. So you may have noticed, in addition to this sort of black and white grayscale point cloud UI, we see an optical image off to the right. And this is an example of, of the sensor fusion capability. So what we're seeing here is that for this particular vehicle that was capturing LiDAR data, it also had a camera mounted on top of it, and it was just taking snapshots. And so I, you know, I, I think what people can get a sense for is just how useful this is from from the annotator's perspective, because uh, you know, admittedly, this is this is a pretty complex way of, of looking at the world, right? I think you, you said it well, Nick. We're not used to really thinking about things in that way. But but if I look at this optical image, you know, this this is almost like as if I'm behind the, the steering wheel myself, and I can clearly see, oh yeah, there, there's a car directly in front of me, and then there's one off to the left, and and you know, here's a sidewalk, and, and you can make out all the, the the typical features that you'd see if you were out driving yourself. Now, what I'll, what I'll start to show is just sort of how to create these annotations. And we'll see, again, how the, the sensor fusion capability really becomes powerful. So if I create one of these cuboids, a couple things just happened that I want to want to point out for people. So the first thing is, if we look at this point cloud UI, we see this sort of big red rectangular prism. Um, we, we tend to call these cuboids. But it's you know essentially a rectangular prism, and and I can do different things to to manipulate it in three D space. So here I'm just sort of rotating it about its vertical axis. There's there's a label that's assigned to it. Uh, it's it's car, and it's in fact the first instance of the car class. That's just because I I hadn't created any cars previously. If I create a new one of these, for instance, over here, now we have car one and and car two, and. So then if we look off to the right-hand side, we see a couple of, of really, really powerful things. So the first is we see this sort of detail view of the point cloud. And we can see that it's sort of just really helping us visually hone in on the vehicle that sort of is inside this cuboid that we've drawn. And you'll notice if I rotate this in the 3D space, these orthographic views uh, also get updated. Now, in addition to that, if you look at this optical image, if I rotate the box, you can see it move even in that 2D projection. And so this is this is where you know a lot of that boilerplate that looked really uh, challenging to grok. This is where that comes into play because all the all those dimensions, the coordinates, the the orientations, the positions, that helps us do this sort of mathematical projection from 3D space to, to 2D space. So that's that's the the value of of that complexity, if you will. 
And so now that we're here with, with the cuboid, I can demonstrate some of the assistive features. So what I want to do here is I want to just sort of drag this out to make this fully encompass the vehicle here. So like I said before, the, these features uh, allow you to just kind of get sort of roughly the, the right size and shape. And then these features help you just sort of shrink rack the box down to the object in question. So, so we have a number of hotkeys. Uh, the shortcuts are all listed at the top left here. And I have a little cheat sheet that I wrote down because there's, there's a bunch of hotkeys here. And so, you know, first rule of live demos is, you know, try to have, try to have the important things written down in advance. Don't, so don't give away all the I secrets. Press... Come on. Don't give away all the secrets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah got, got, got to keep something in reserve. So I'm on a Mac here. So I'm going to be talking about command and, and option keys. But if I press option O, this will do the shrink to fit assistive capability. So if I press option O, now you can see we just have this really nice and tight cuboid that sort of fits right around the, the vehicle in question. And then as an annotator, I can just sort of make any last minute adjustments that I need to. But through this shrink to fit capability, you know, it takes, it takes one minor adjustment and not a lot of tedious, laborious back and forth. Uh, now, the next thing I want to demonstrate is the, is the ground detection feature. And, and to demonstrate this, I'm going to take this cuboid that I just uh, shrink-wrapped around the car and, and just sort of intentionally distort it just because I want to demonstrate the, the functionality here. So I'm going to take this box and just drag it way down. So, so if we look at this orthographic view, the, what, I'm, what I'm trying to illustrate here is just that this box is going way below the ground in a way that we, we wouldn't actually want it to in, in a real scenario. And so my, my handy hotkey here is option G. And now you can see the bottom of this box sort of jumped up to, to street level. It didn't, didn't affect the top, didn't affect you know, any of the sides, because this is, this is specifically designed to uh, detect the, the neutral plane of the ground. And so now, now that I'm here, if I wanted to, to maybe use that shrink wrap feature again, option O, and, and boom, I'm, I'm right down around the vehicle. So one Is that, is that going to detect ground just for that object, or is it going to detect the ground for the entire scene? It's going to be just for this this object. So if if we jump to one of these these other objects, any any annotations that I have around other objects are, are annotations that I would have to adjust separately. But I can take exactly the same workflow. You know, suppose I had just made an initial pass, gotten roughly the right size and shape. I can come around here and and just press Option G again, Option O, and you know, in this case, the the, the box was maybe a little bit too large because it was overlapping with the, the car adjacent to it. But if I grab that edge, and, and now it's clearly sort of in, in between those two cars, if I press option O again, now it gets nice and tight around the doors. So those are two of the assistive capabilities. To, to show the, the third capability, that interpolation capability, uh, what I have to do here is actually load all the frames in this sequence. So, so this, is, this is an object tracking workflow. And so inherently, there are multiple frames in the sequence. So I can jump from one frame to another here. And now you can, as I click through this, you can sort of see the visual progression of the vehicle. And in fact, if you look at the optical camera here, it, it's admittedly a little bit subtle, but if I go back to the first frame and then come to the 10th frame, you, you can sort of see how it's closer to the crosswalk. So that image is actually updating as we advance through, through the frames. Okay, so for this uh, interpolation capability, let's go all the way back to the first frame. And if I look behind us, I can see what looks like another car back here. 
So I'm going to come around and uh, try to get an annotation here. So let's see. So I want this to maybe come out here. So I'm going to use some of those assistive capabilities again. Start off with with a nice high quality box option O. Okay, so now we're we're nice and tight on this car. And so now let's let's watch what happens as I go from frame one to uh, what is this frame frame three frame seven to, to frame ten. Actually, what what I want is not this car, but I want the one that's that's next to it because that's the one that's really moving. So so let me try that again. So if I look actually at this car. All right, so I've got that. I'm going to pull this down. Option O. All right, so let me let me try that again. So this is the first frame. If I go to option 10, you can sort of see this, this ghosted outline of the car here, but the box is still back where it was in the first frame, right? So, so this is where the, the power of this, this interpolation capability comes into play. W without interpolation, what I'd have to do is I'd have to go, okay, uh, frame one, the box is, is nice and tight. Frame two, okay, the car moved forward a little bit. You can see these red points here, sort of the nose of the car sticking out in front of the box. W without the interpolation capability, I'd have to come here, manually adjust that, go to the next frame. Oh, now the car has moved forward a little bit more. I have to manually adjust that. And instead, what I can do is I can just jump to, in, in this case, the final frame of the sequence. But depending on how sophisticated or, or long the sequence is, you you know you might want to go jump at at, say, two frame intervals or five frame intervals or, or something along those lines. And what I can do is I can just drag this box sort of where it needs to be. Now I can touch this up again using those assistive capabilities. And the great thing about this interpolation capability is it sort of happens behind the scenes. There's not even really necessarily anything you, you need to do to, to leverage it. So if I go back to the first frame, here's our box. And now I'll just sort of go through here frame by frame. And what's happened is the tool has automatically interpolated from frame one through two, three, four, five, you know, so on and so forth, all the way up to 10. And is just sort of tracking this, this, this vehicle uh, nice the, the whole rest of the way. So effectively here, uh, frames, frames one and 10 become the key frames in this, in this sequence. Awesome. I mean, I've used Ground Truth before. I've used it for lots of other types of data labeling workflows, like for mm -hmm. images or for text data. But I'm blown away, not mm -hmm. just for the capability of it being able to use 3D point cloud data, but the amount of task specific. I mean, quality of life improvements doesn't even do it justice, I think. Like, I can't imagine being confident in a lot of these annotations short of all of the features that we have here, like pairing the like the sensor mm -hmm. fusion like you described. So this is this is really amazing. And again, you mentioned before, if people want to get started with this, they can actually go to that live notebook that was included in the launch post by uh, Julian, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, it's a perfect way to get your feet wet and, and get started. We provide all the assets. This demo we're seeing is is literally the the demo that you would run if you ran that notebook yourself. So, you know, it has everything you need to get started. Awesome. Well, John, don't want to keep you for too long. But uh, again, thank you for the very quick demo there uh, covering a large number of features. I know it can be a lot to digest, but I know that anytime something's visual, whether you're labeling data or just trying to see something in action to understand <laughs> if it, uh, how it works for you, it, it is always an improvement. So thank you again for the time today, John. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Awesome. Uh, that is our final demo today. No more demos. Sorry if that's disappointing, but we've just gone through almost three hours of demos. So if you're if you're not demoed out, I don't know how I couldn't be. But um, 
Yeah, lots of awesome launches again here on the AWS What's Next show, uh, showcasing the latest and greatest uh, from the launches here at Amazon Web Services. But let's recap, right? We saw a lot of exciting stuff today. Everything from Code Artifact with Richard. Wow, it feels like forever ago, uh, <laughs> a few hours back, to uh, DMS, database migration support for Amazon Neptune for folks trying to get into graph databases or migrating existing data into a graph database. Uh, and then lastly, we just saw 3D point cloud integration for uh, Amazon SageMaker Ground Truth. So, man, this show really spans the gamut. <laughs> we, we cover a lot of different yeah. things. Yeah, I mean, this was a, a high variety show, uh, I got to say. I mean, this really kind of took us all over the place across the stack. I mean, we covered databases, we covered ML workflows, uh, specifically uh, data annotation. And then we have, you know, uh, infrastructure, uh, our you know, code registry kind of uh, infrastructure configuration. So I, I think this is really, really satisfying to be able to have such a diverse set of content on this one show, on this one episode. Yeah, and so uh, I mentioned I joked before that unfortunately we didn't have five launches for episode five. I think there's there's an upper bound limit to the amount of time we can spend and, yeah. and uh, launches we can we can lasso in and bring onto our show. But we're gonna do the same game that we do every single week, which is we take each of the launches that we covered uh, for the demos uh, on this week's episode, and we're gonna try and find a way to string them together in some maniacal way uh, into uh, some cohesive either company or application or or what have you. So again, well, well Nick, I think you gotta explain the game a little bit better so that everybody in chat can play along as well oh yeah okay all right so again if you're if you're new to the show welcome one we're a live show so we're, we're watching chat all on the way at both twitch.tv slash aws and on our linkedin page if you were not aware you can ask questions throughout the broadcast and we try to get those answered um, either in chat or uh, to the experts that we have on the desk but during this fun segment at the end you know please 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 join along if you can think of funny ways to string these together that are even better than what we can come up with one i don't doubt that you can but two we want to hear it so um this little game we play we don't have a name for it. If you have a name for it, we'd, we'd, we'd like to hear that too because uh, we need some creative minds in here. Yeah, essentially we take the launches, we try to find a way to string them together. So if there was like the dream customer or the dream developer who was like, oh man, you launched every single thing that was at the top of my wish list, what would that application look like? And so uh, we're going to do that little thought exercise right now. So again, our three launches, Code Artifact, uh, DMS Integration, for, for Neptune graph databases and 3D point cloud support for labeling jobs. This is a tough one, but I... It is a tough one. I, well, also, I, I want to... People in the audience, if you're going to follow along, the, the analogy I want to give you is if you've ever seen that show, Iron Chef, these are the secret ingredients. Imagine that the, the, the um, you know, 3D point cloud, uh, DMS for Neptune and Code Artifact are your three secret ingredients. What are you going to cook up with this? What product would you build? And it doesn't have to be these, but it, it, it should it should focus on... It can be more, right? You can have some other services on the side, but uh, it should try and focus and, and showcase these three services working in conjunction with each other. Uh, I can keep... I, in my head, I'm like, I got a lot of pairs. All three is kind of tough. <laughs> like... I mentioned before, when we were talking about Code Artifact, one of the really big value propositions that jumped out to me was that 
it's more than just managing your code. It's more than just managing your packages even. Like you can throw large files and there are these, these compiled bundles that are immutable for deployments. And like in AI and machine learning, uh, the big sort of red thumb there is is model binary or not binaries, but like model blob files. These are the outputs of a training job and they can just be these like piles of text that are like 10 gigabytes large, right? And so checking those into Git is traditionally not really viable. Um, so my idea is like, okay, well, we have this solving AI ML sort of model versioning problems, but then we also went uh, and worked with uh, data annotation for 30 point clouds. So um, let's assume we're an autonomous driving startup. And I know that's, I don't know if that's lazy, you know, or what have you. Maybe we're an autonomous, uh, instead of driving, an autonomous kitchen scanning startup, right? Where we're making one of those robots that like can, can cook for us, right? And won't be driving. And it can detect what objects are in the kitchen to pick them up with this like robotic hand, let's say, right? And so we wanted to train a model on that. So we need to take the 3D point cloud data of a kitchen and be like, oh, well, from this, this looks like an apple. This looks like an orange. This looks like a T-bone steak, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of rig the first two together. And the third one, I think, will be collective because it's a little bit harder. So we can use... We can use... 3D point cloud in ground truth to label our kitchen so that our sensors and our mechanical arm can know what all the objects and ingredients in our kitchen are there. And I sort of like gave you an easy segue into two, which is like that we're going to train models and put them into to uh, code artifacts and manage that as sort of our upstream for our deployments. But Neptune, well, Nick, I, I think was, you're missing out on this. It's a very easy connection to make for from from kitchens to uh, graph data. I just came up with it, but I want to hear you say it because yeah, I no, 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 go go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say like, well, what are we cooking, right? Like, or or like, what would be good? We want to serve like recommendations, and so we can do very simple things like collaborative filtering, like you know, oh, you enjoy, you know, citrus or, or oranges as an ingredient, and those have property citrus, and we can use something like Neptune to you know, use that property graph to serve recommendations for other dishes that we may have all the ingredients for. And so this is a this is a prime example of like pushing what would otherwise be downstream sort of like custom application logic and, and code for that personalization and make that really easy with something like a managed Neptune notebook with the graph database backing it. Yeah. Man, man you're on the hook. It uh, wasn't what I was thinking, but I think that's a great example. Uh, what were you thinking? Well, I, I was thinking, uh, I guess... Thinking it through now, if you extend the point cloud data collection to cover the whole home instead of just the kitchen, so maybe you have a Roomba-like scenario, you know, you have, or, or you know, autonomous uh, robots that clean the entire home, um, then what you can do is you can express the the relationships of the different rooms and the contents, and even like some of the home automation and the the um, maybe you have these. Uh, what are those things called when you put down the, the, the fences that tell the room but not to go into a certain room? You know Geo, geofencing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the geofencing sensors. But you can create a graph of where those things are, what they relate to. What, you know, so, so you have relationships that are like this geofencing sensor fences off this location, which you've labeled with this, which contains this other thing. This is the kind of, this, is the kind of you know, you know, this does this, does this, does this, does this. You know when you start to talk about your problem in that way, that you're going to have a really hard time expressing those relationships in terms of association tables. And that's where kind of the, the superpower of the graph database starts to shine. So what, that, that was what I was thinking. Rob, we're combining the two, right? Here, get, hear me out. Okay. Billion dollar startup idea, right? So 
the sensor in the kitchen and the robot arm, it's going to be able to actually take up, pick up the food and like put it in the pan and, and cook it and everything. I'm going to rig like a pizza pan on top of a Roomba. And with your idea, it will literally be oven to table delivery where I won't have to get up and I can just like have it cooking downstairs and I'll control it from my phone and my Roomba will like come and deliver it to me. That's oh man, robot waiter. Uh, robot, robot, you know, home cooking and delivery staff, right? The, the true uh, vacuums as it serves pizza. The true last mile delivery that Amazon has yet to uh, service yet. We're yeah, going yeah. to corner the market, Rob. We're going to quit our jobs. We're going to, that's what we're going to do. All the services yeah, are available yeah. there now. I want to see the market plan on this I, one. This is, uh, this is that's uh i love it every week i I question why i haven't gone off and built each of these ridiculous maniacal (laughs) startups that we pitch and come up with on the fly exactly (laughs) well all right twitch uh linkedin you know you've been fantastic audience sticking with us to the end like this hopefully you find this section entertaining like this is much participation i know these it's really putting you on the spot but it's also a creative exercise so i highly encourage you to uh, think creatively about how to use these new services. Yeah, and if you liked this section or anything in the show or didn't like anything in the show, we'd love to hear it. Just trying to figure out uh, what your thoughts are, what you'd like to see more of, what you, uh, you know, or ideas that we haven't even come up with. We're sort of designed by committee here, right? So these are these are what we like or what we think would work best unless until someone proves us otherwise. So, man, we have been live for hours. I, I know I'm hungry. And speaking about autonomous food delivery, cooking and delivery services is not <laughs> yes. helping me. But we, uh, again, you know, if you made it this far, whether you're a returning guest or, or returning viewer or, or new to the show for the first time, again, this is AWS What's Next. We try to cover all of the exciting launches. We, we bring the service teams out to show you demos because we understand that for Rob and I as developers, like hearing about the product is great. Seeing a blog post is, is awesome. But like, being able to ask the questions that matter to me and being able to see it in action are two of the things that I would always love to have. And so we've tried to do that with this show. And we will continue to do so and keep iterating on your feedback to, to make sure we're bringing you what you want. So with that, I think we're going to close out for today. But we have episode 6 coming up just around the corner. I believe that is uh, June 26th. So two Fridays from now. Typically, we run on a three-week cadence. Uh, we've moved some things around. Today's episode was exciting. That episode, from what I've seen so far, is also going to be very exciting. So again, same place, same time. Uh, the 26th, the Friday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Follow along on Twitch or LinkedIn. If you'd like to be notified, uh, if you follow along on our Twitch channel, that should definitely give you a notification. The email will say that we're going live with what's next. And on LinkedIn, uh, I'm pretty sure it'll pop up as well. Rob, anything else that I forgot? Three hours is a long time. I'm uh, I'm losing it over here. Yeah, well, I, I think um, episode six will be special if I think we're going to cover what I think we're going to cover. So you don't want to miss it. All right. I, I, I'm the one who always says every episode special and Rob never says that. And this one he says is going to be special. So if you don't take my word for it, there you go. Well, then again, I'm also the person who was flipping out about storing empty strings in DynamoDB. So you may want to take that as a counter signal. Well, you know, <laughs> if they don't agree, they can come and chat and tell us. Uh, we'll be here. We'll be watching for, for what it's worth. So, all right. Well, again, that's it. AWS What's Next, Episode 5. Calling it done and dusted. I'm Nick Walsh. Rob Zhu here from the Developer Advocacy Team here. Thank you for tuning in. And we will see you in two weeks on June 26th. Take it easy, everyone.